All right. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to another amazing session for Saturday. Um, you know, we, we um, had another reflection group last night, we, as we do on Friday nights. And it's always so extremely valuable to hear, um, you know, what um, other students, um, you know, learned and reflected upon um, from the surahs. And it's nice to go back to because, you know, we're going at lightning speed. Um, and so a lot of times when we go back to the reflection groups, these are surahs that we might have covered several weeks back. And it's like they kind of all mesh together. But when we go back and we do like a reflection, it's really valuable to kind of go back and, and you know, have another chance to think about it and internalize it and stuff. Um, and, you know, like it's, it's always valuable because you hear something that you don't think about yourself and it triggers other ideas. And so it's a really lovely um, exercise. And I love sharing some of that here. So last night um, we were talking, one of the surahs we were talking about was Surah Mulk. Um, and what was very striking to me is um, the reference at the very end of the chapter about water and how, you know, what would it be like if God just removed water, right? And how everything in creation and existence depends on this life source. Um, and I guess I should take a moment to say, alhamdulillah, we are still on water <laughs> with Jake. We're still watering him. So that's all good. Um, <laughs> but what was fascinating too is, um, the idea, you know, like when we try to think about how we connect the things we're learning in our world to the things that we're learning about in the Quran, um, I just I wanted to share a couple of things that I thought were really striking um, that were on social media. Um, you know, there was a point about the pandemic and the fragility of life and how everything is, you know, dependent on water and God and all of that. Um, and so, you know, Bernie Sanders, um, someone who I, you know, was very excited about at one point, um, he shared that the California officials tell CNN that they anticipate nearly all the salmon in the Sacramento River will die due to abnormally hot underwater conditions as the heat wave continues. So the idea that an entire salmon population in the Sacramento River will die is really shocking. Um, he also shared uh, a couple of days later um, an article from Scientific American that more than one billion sea creatures along the Vancouver coast were cooked to death during a record-breaking heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, I, this is, it's, it's really shocking. Um, you know, like I remember, you know, at, at one point early in my life, I worked in um, commercial real estate and I spent a time up in Seattle. This was back in the early 90s or late, late 80s, early 90s. And I remember back then, Seattle was really known as like the cloudy city, like it would always rain. And, you know, um, and that was not even that long ago. And then over time, the, you know, the, the climate change where it was more sunny, it became more like what I anticipated California to be like, you know, kind of always a, a beautiful sunny day. Um, and so now to understand it as, you know, this is like up in the northern part of our country on the northwest to now have reached a point where, you know, the heat wave is so, um, so severe that we've lost a billion sea creatures is really shocking. Um, and it just, you know, all it comes back to the idea, you know, of water and even like how every little thing, um, you know, someone pointed out in the reflection group last night that the pandemic and COVID is, has like a relatively low mortality rate. It's like 1% or something like that. And yet it had, was able to wreak such incredible havoc around the world 
So just again, you know, like when we're learning in the Quran about just how fragile life is and how everything depends on God and every little bit of change can, you know, result in disaster, it just really hammers home, like, again, the importance of what we're learning. It's like the, the visual example of, you know, what God is talking about in the Quran. Um, and, and it's just very striking. Um, I also wanted to just take a moment to highlight um, the incredible khutbah that, um, that the sheikh gave yesterday, um, where he talked about um, a lot of things. I mean, it's a really, it was a really layered, very deep um, and powerful khutbah, as always. Um, started out talking about dual hijjah, um, and you know, moving to sort of the purpose of um, you know the purpose of Hajj, and what was particularly striking to me um, was you know the idea that um, you know people go and they you know circumambulate around the Kaaba, they wear clothing so that there's no distinction between men and women or you know rich and poor and all of that. You know, you go through that and then you come home and then you, you return to your home where there is incredible um, gap, an incredible gap between the rich and the poor and so much injustice. And, you know, it's, it's like all of the things that you are supposed to experience at Hajj um, is supposed to hammer home, you know, like what is, what is it that God wanted from us? You know, whether it's sharing the wealth to, you know, like create more equality, uh, equality among human beings, um, or you know, to recognize that there is, you know, this incredible diversity, but but diversity and equality, you know, are are married, um, not intended to be a, a purpose for, um, you know, discrimination and, um, you know, differences in in income equality and and racial inequality and all of that. Um, and so I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. But you know, coming back to another comment that someone in our reflection group made last night, um, the idea that you know we talk about the one percent, and normally when you say oh the one percent, the rich and the wealthy, you start thinking about the billionaires. You know, the the like Jeff Bezos and these people who are doing these like space races and all of that crazy stuff. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if you're watching this halakha and you're with us, you are part of the one percent. I mean, you're educated, you're, you know, you have a computer, you're, you know, you care about world issues and all of that. Um, and we are the 1%. And, you know, I mean, we, I believe that most of us who are watching are part of the West. And so we have the, the greatest ability to affect change in our world. Um, and when you add to that sort of the idea of, okay, we are a small group of people that meet on a regular basis to really delve deep into the Quran. And now we've covered 50 chapters. So if you've been following us and you get caught up, now you probably have been, you know, you, you have a deep knowledge of more about the Quran than the vast majority of Muslims. And that is an incredible gift, um, and at the same time, a huge responsibility. And, you know, it, it sometimes is overwhelming because, you know, we, I think, are very sensitized and very empathetic to all of the injustice that is taking place in the world. We talk about it all the time, we're learning about it. And it, sometimes you feel like, oh my gosh, what can I do? And even the idea that, oh my God, I'm in the 1%, you know, that puts an extra burden on you. What, what can I possibly do? Um, you know, and sometimes like at night, I, I mean, I honestly, I struggle with this idea. I'm not doing enough. What else can I do? I'm sitting here, you know, drinking my cup of coffee, you know, having whatever I want for dinner, sleeping in my nice bed, taking a bath. You know, it's like, what about the people, you know, in China who are in concentration camps? Um, and this was one of the things that the professor talked about last yesterday in the khutbah as well. Um, you know, which is like, we are living in a time of a Holocaust. 
And it's not just a holocaust of anyone, it's a holocaust of Muslims. You know, and if you try to really wrap your brain around that, and it's like, oh my God, think about how you felt when you heard about the holocaust of the Jewish, you know, of the Jews, and thinking, why did those people who lived at that time, why didn't they do anything? How could this happen? You know, how could anyone, you know, but here we are. You know, again, it's, we, we are back to this and it's now, you know, the people in the future are going to look back at us and God is going to look at us and say, well, what did we do to try and affect change? And, you know, and did we do everything that we could? And, you know, we certainly learned from the chutbah that the angels, you know, and God will ask us, if you lived in that time of the Holocaust, did you do everything that you possibly could to affect some kind of change? So, you know, it's hard, we, you know, there was a person who commented on the, the live stream that this is one of these sources of great, you know, just um, unhappiness because, um, you know, this person was from Bosnia, it happened to, um, the, you know, his family or her family, actually I'm not sure, um, and it's like that person felt extremely hopeless and, you know, and, and helpless and unable to do anything. So let me just start by sharing, you know, I mean, I, I like, I think that that chuppah really hit me hard on the Holocaust front. And I just wanted to then bring to um, attention the article that the professor pointed out. It just came out in the Atlantic. This is the very iconic picture of the Uyghur Muslim. He is actually a very famous um, poet. Um, and the article um, starts out by talking about, you know, if at any time you were in New York and maybe you caught an Uber at this particular time, he might have been your driver, and he was actually one of the most famous poets um, in China, and he and his family were able to leave uh, and escape. I haven't read this yet, but after I heard that, I mean, it's actually partly, um, the, the, the side story that was sort of funny is around seven o'clock in the morning before the chutbah, I came across this article, a friend had sent it to us, and I, I brought it to the professor, and I said, you know, not necessarily saying this is for the, for the chutbah tomorrow, but it looks like an extremely important article that you should read. And so he's like, okay, fine, open it up for me. So he started reading it, um, you know, and then I went to work on some stuff and came back eight in the morning, he was still up, and I'm like, what are you doing up? And he's like, well, this article kept me up, and you know, it was extremely painful. Um, but, you know, let's just say maybe the first thing that we can do is commit to reading this article. It's a long article, but um, it's called um, One by One, My Friends, um, let's see, let me do. One by One, My Friends Were Sent to the Camps. And I think if nothing else, like this face is just, I mean, there's something about this picture that really just grabs my heart. I mean, maybe partly because, you know, you could just see like the emotion in it. Um, and maybe being Chinese too, I might, I might spend my entire Muslim life fascinated by the idea that there were Chinese, you know, Chinese people who were Muslim and who could speak Arabic. But you know, this is like someone who could be like a close friend. It could be your family member. It could be someone that you know very, you know, intimately. Um, and I, I'm sure that the stories, you know, that, that he tells um, in this piece, you know, are, are going to be extremely painful. And I, you know, like these are the things that are really hard to read. But I, I've committed that by next week I want to have finished this article, if nothing else, just to experience and try to increase my empathy, you know, towards uh, something that, you know, is so easy to shut out because it's like, okay, it's, you know, far away. What can I do? I feel helpless, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's so many other things going on in the world. I'm so busy. No. I, you know, I, I, I know I'm going to be asked, and I, I want to at least start by trying to spark the empathy in my heart so that it becomes front and center and it becomes a priority and not just one of the many things that I need to get to someday. So um, I, I would just greatly encourage anyone if you, you know, to please you know, find this article, join me um, in just taking this one step because I think that if you, if you read something and it grabs your heart, 
then that passion is a lot easier to turn into action. And even if, you know, I mean, maybe we can come up with ideas about what we can, what we can do together. But um, just, you know, that's one step that I know I can commit to taking at least to hopefully lead to something better. So, um, so that's it. I, I just, you know, again, like I, I'm just so grateful for all of the, the ways that what we're learning here affect how we see the world and, you know, make us hopefully feel a little bit more empowered about our ability to make a change because it, it is going to fall on us Muslims in the West. So, so, so in the morning, people on the, they're going to think that we woke up. I woke up at 7 in the morning. Oh, <laughs> let me clarify. <laughs> we don't wake up at 7. We usually go to bed at 7. So we're usually up all night. We keep a vampire schedule. Um, and so, you know, 7 o'clock was in the morning. It was unfair of me because, you know, this is about the time that he's winding down. He's been preparing all night for the chuppah. You know, he's going to grab a few hours of sleep before the, the halakha that starts at, you know, 1.45 our time in the afternoon. So for me to kind of drop a bomb on him right when he's going to bed is really horrible. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, sometimes, like, because... Okay, my, my, my justification is the chutbah was so incredible that maybe I was just a vehicle for sharing something that needed to, you know, spark something. But I, I'm grateful. I'm sorry that you lost sleep, but it was an incredible learning experience and an incredible um, chutbah. So if you haven't watched it, definitely watch it. So, sorry. But alhamdulillah, thank Good you. Job, <laughs> so anyway, I'm Keep looking forward to, I, I know, I just like, we're, just, sent, we're a bunch of workaholics. And, and you're elevating my status in general. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. <laughs> That's usually what, yeah, one of my purposes here. <laughs> okay, so um, anyway, I'm looking forward to an amazing halakha, and um, thank you for being with us. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa tarawah bi ihsanin ila yawmati wa allam wa shrahi sabihi Yassir li amri wa ahlul aqdatan wa lisani yafqal qawli InshaAllah today we will be doing Surat Al-Mu'minun Sorry, Surat Al-Anbiya Surat Al-Anbiya But before we delve in we want to introduce the latest addition to the library because it just arrived from Saudi, right? It just arrived from Saudi today. Al Wafa bi Asma in Nisa by Dr. Muhammad Akram in Nadawi. This um, this set is 47 volumes, and it is a biographical dictionary of women scholars in Islamic history. Um, Muhammad Akram al-Nadawi, I think what he did was that he um, went through just a, a considerable number of of medieval biographical dictionaries and plucked from them um, entries on women. And he collected all the entries in... Oh. Oh, this is the book. I'm being told to hold it up. This is the first volume, obviously. The, the thing is 47 volumes, so... Um, yeah, so... Um, 
the so when he he plucked the entries on women, they they filled forty seven volumes, uh, and the publisher, although it's a well known publisher, Dara Minhaj, but of course you know the the distribution circles has been are, are pretty horrible. Uh, so it was hard to get the source and it cost about a thousand dollars um you know it's it's a source like this so there's a scholar that went through the effort gathering the material a publisher that did seems to did a good job publishing it um but it is there are many further steps for this information or for this knowledge to have um, any impact. Uh, so 47 volumes of women scholars in medieval Islam, it requires people that read the work and it requires people then that analyze the raw data because it's a raw data uh, reference source and then analytically engage in the process of thinking analytically what does this data mean um, what does it tell us about gender relations um, is the information does the inform does the the is a takeaway from it vary by location, by time period. Um, there are a lot of material written about Islam and women, but a lot of it is not anchored in any empirical raw data. A lot of it is just impressionistic. And or um, it's a uses as its material some sociological data from the modern period and then projects backwards onto the Islamic tradition from the sociological material that is called from some modern reality, which methodologically is flawed, obviously, and very problematic, but that's what happens all the time. So you see the the I think that the the biggest the biggest challenge is Muslims are confronting in the modern age in my view is Islamophobia and it's not the Islamophobia that is directed at us from um, ex fanatic evangelists or fanatic Zionists. Indeed, it is the Islamophobia that has seeped into the Muslim consciousness itself. Um, the, the assumptions that lead to skepticism about the value of the Islamic tradition that plagues the Muslim mind and heart 
Orientalism, which is the more dignified version of Islamophobia, has shaped the entire discourse on Islam. And, and Muslims only relate to their tradition through the prism of Orientalism and Islamophobia. I, the very few Muslims are able to relate to, to their tradition without the dynamics going through the prism of Islamophobia. And Islamophobia is directly, not indirectly, but directly responsible for the genocide in Bosnia, for Kosovo, for the Rohingyas, for the persecution of Muslims in India, um, and of course for the Holocaust taking place in China. Um, leave alone for the countless number of people that have been snared up by the FBI or the CIA or by intelligence agencies. Islamophobia is the reason that we continue um, being engaged in Iraq and Afghanistan and no one thinks about how many Muslims we kill in these countries. No one keeps count. No one cares. Uh, it, quite literally, quite literally, um, no one knows, no one has killed. I mean, if you look for it, you can find the information because there, it is published. It exists. But the general public is not aware and does not care about how many atrocities have been committed in countries like Iraq or Afghanistan by um, the coalition forces, whether American, Australian, British. Um, how many atrocities, how many people killed. It is remarkable. It's remarkable. Because that phenomena is directly related to Islamophobia. So if the biggest challenge that we confront is Islamophobia, well, what's the counter to Islamophobia? Well, honestly, it's raw material like this, but this raw material is useless if the, the, the minds that go through the information. You could publish a book like this, 47 volumes, but if that book exists so it will be read by five scholars, uh, if that. Um, and who knows, you know, and then these five scholars publish, maybe publish a work that is published by Brill, you know, they write a book that's published by Brill. How many people, how many Muslims read a book published by Brill? What type of impact is that going to have? And the likelihood is that the five Muslim scholars will be educated in Western institutions and that their mind will be orientalized. And so whatever they publish is, is um, going to be plagued by all the cultural and ideological assumptions. So my point is, once again, very concretely, 
um, we need to spend on knowledge. The answer to our plight as Muslims, the answer to everything, in my view, from the countless number of people we've murdered in Iraq and the countless number of people we murdered in Afghanistan. Um, and, and when I say the numbers go into the millions, millions. Um, leave alone the number of people, the number of Muslims that the French have murdered in Chad, for instance. How many of you here, how many uh, people have been killed in Chad by French forces? Uh, which is directed, French violence in Chad is solely directed at Muslims. Um, leave alone the plight of Muslims in places like South Sudan, um, which no one pays attention to. Um, doesn't even get a mention. Maybe Reuters will report something, but that's it. You know, if it's just, it's, it's amazing. And when you keep going back again and again, you keep finding the ugly head of Islamophobia and, oh, well, you know, it's a counter-jihad movement. Well, you know, we're afraid of jihad. We're, we're... So as I'm, ha as, as I'm extremely happy that I finally received this book, um, you know, six months. It at, took it at, took what? At least six months. Yeah, it took about six months for me to to receive the book, and uh, and my kind wife generated the funds for it, thousand dollars, which is a drop in the bucket of how much we spent on books. But anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying support. We need your support. Okay, Surat al-Anbiya. is revealed it's among the last surah revealed in Mecca so it's a late Meccan surah most reports say that it was revealed directly after Surah Ibrahim um, and some scholars have suggested that there is um, a, a continuity in message, a, uh, that the messages of Surat Al-Kahf, Surat Al-Nahr, um, and Surat Al-Mu'minun, Ibrahim and Al-Anbiya that these sower are connected that some scholars have even suggested that they must be studied together and analyzed as uh, as a coherent whole um, I see the I see the, the, the connections between a surah like Al-Anbiya 
عن المؤمنون عن الكهف um, but I'm not quite I'm not quite sure about um, other than they're all late Meccan surahs and that they, they're all building blocks in a layered message um, that covers various aspects of the Islamic da'wah right before the hijra. Um, that seems to me as the most basic and fundamental unity between the sur. But inshallah we'll see as we delve into it. And So, something that we notice right away, Surah Al-Anbiya is obviously called Al-Anbiya because of the emphasis in the Surah itself on the, a series or, or mentioned within the Surah are ten prophets. And however the Surah focuses among these prophets, the only ones that it focuses on with some specificity, some length, it, it talks about, it deals with some length, are Ibrahim salam, and we'll see why, we'll talk about this in a, in a second. Um, Ibrahim salam, and uh, the Prophet Sulaiman and Dawood in a very special and particular way. We know, of course, that there are many other surah in the Quran that address a number of prophets. So what was distinctive about this surah that it is called Surah Al-Anbiya? And why in particular this surah becomes Surah Al-Anbiya? This has to be, of course, important to think about. What struck the early Muslims about the surah that it it was given this title? One of the very interesting things about Surah Al-Anbiya is the number of reports about how it was received. Normally, I, I talk about how surah was received at the very end. But with Surah Al-Anbiya, it's probably helpful to just flag it at the very beginning. So, for instance, we have a narrative from Amr bin Rabi'ah, one of the um, companions of the Prophet, one of the illustrious companions, or, or well-known companions, um, that 
whether whether the, the narrative is historical or not, that's not that's not important. The important thing is the the import, uh, the meaning of the narrative. Um, the Amr bin Rabia reportedly, when someone approaches him and says that they want to um, dedicate a plot of land to support the, the da'wah efforts of, or to, to help Amr bin Rabia financially. I don't, it's not even support the da'wah efforts because this, the narrative says that the the land would be would would be a trust would be created where the land would accrue to the benefit of Amr bin Rabia, and reportedly Amr bin Rabia gives a very interesting response. He says, "لا حاجة لي في قطعتك." That I don't I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't want it. Uh, and the justification, the answer he gives, it says, "نزلت اليوم صورة أزهلتنا عن الدنيا." That the, Today, because today was revealed a surah that has made me turn away from the affairs of this world. Basically, I, to, because surah, and he's talking about surah al-anbiya, and that because of surah al-anbiya that, you know, I've, I've lost interest in um, the riches of this world. And there are several other narratives like this. Um, that Surah Al-Anbiya, there's another narrative, again, whether historical or not, that's not the, the significant point, that um, there was a man who uh, was building something, and when Surah Al-Anbiya was revealed, this, this man decides it's not worth it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to finish the building. So... Surah Al-Anbiya was received, at least in, in, in a lot of the these narratives that tell us about the reactions of the companions, um, um, it clearly had an impact in making people ponder the issue of materialism and reliance on materialism as a value system and to aspire for something more. Let's put it that way. But Encoded in Surah Al-Anbiya, as we'll see, is not just an aspiration of austerity, if you will, an aspiration of, uh, of spiritualism rather than materialism, but a particular aspiration towards the building, the pursuit and the building of justice. And we'll talk about that, especially in the narratives presented about the prophets Sulaiman and Dawood alayhum salam.
אוקיי. So there are many uh, ayat in Surah Al-Anbiya that will not require us to pause long because the meaning is straightforward. And what will be uh, uh, more important is for us to, to extract the, the essential lesson of Surah Al-Anbiya. Okay, so Surah Al-Anbiya starts out with something that grabs your attention and the the narratives from Amr bin Rabia and, and similar narratives convey that sense the, the sense of it raises the alarm about what's coming next next <laughs> The day of reckoning is close, and yet human beings are for the most part heedless to the day of reckoning. As so many commentators pointed out that it doesn't mean as some orientalists have um, speculated that the Quran was saying that the hereafter is imminent uh, it's at the doorstep uh, but that the, the reckoning that human beings confront is as eminent as their death. Because once you die, the reckoning is set in motion. Whether the hereafter, whether the, the Yom Al-Qiyamah is a thousand years away or 10,000 years away from the human experience of time, time and again, we see in the Quran that that it does not matter from the divine perspective, the way that we experience time and monitor time. So, اخترب للناس حسابهم وهم في غفلة المعرضون The reckoning is near while human beings continue to be heedless. مَا يَأْتِيهِمْ مِنْ ذِكْرٍ مِنْ رَبِّهِمْ مُحْدَثٍ إِلَّا اسْتَمَعُوهُ وَهُمْ يَلْعَبُونَ Each time Allah has sent a reminder to human beings, there is a pattern. And the pattern is and the, the, again, the, the, the language here is extremely powerful, is that human beings pay attention, but only do so in a half way. They, they hear it, 
but not hear it at the same time. Because they are all, their attention is always diverted. And the Quran describes what diverts the attention of human beings as lab, as play, playful, engaging in just play. And part of what we will address, inshallah, is, is precisely why Surah Al-Anbiya is revealed right before the Hijrah, because that is part, an important part of the, of the message. Okay, so there is a pattern of the difficulty of human beings even when they do spend the time to actually listen to the message, the difficulty in, in giving this message its due in terms of the seriousness of the attention, in terms of being diverted, distracted, and distracted by affairs that um, are not serious, and as we will see, the lack of with the lack of seriousness is okay. So, lahiyatan qulubum asaru najwa al-ladina zalamu hal hada illa bashar mithlukum afatatun al-sihra wa antum tubsurun. So. Their hearts are, div are diverted. But it is, a, and here, Surah Al-Anbiya, it's clear that it's talking about, it sort of segues or changes the, the tone to talk about the the way that Meccans have received the Prophet and the dismissiveness of saying um, well this is just another human being and why should we listen to another human being And to the extent that this human being is presenting them with what could at grab their attention and what could, in fact, generate a change in them, they dismiss what this human being presents when it says, is this a, a, this is a, 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 just if you're following along, Ayah number um, three. Yeah. Uh, it, when it says, "Is this sorcery?" Sikh here is not necessarily sorcery in terms of actual magic and and uh, you know hexes and curses and so on, but any form of deception that 
um, that numbs the mind can be described as sihr in this context. So the pattern is that first to challenge that who brings the message. And here, as has been pointed out by numerous, uh, is that, that this pattern is not just with prophets, but with anyone that brings to the fore a steadfast ethical message. And to immediately jump to the ad hominem approach of saying, well, who are you to be conveying a message to us, rather than dealing with the message itself. And the next step after who are you or what's so special about you, why should we listen to you? The next step is to say, oh, well, this is just a matter of a trickery of some sort or another. It's, oh, this person is just charismatic uh, in our modern equivalent. Oh, this person is just a cult personality. Um, oh, this, this person is, it, it just sounds good. But in other words, do you find whatever one could grab onto to continue on being in a heedless state, in the state of distraction. And this rather solemn reminder to Muslims and non-Muslims that I'll just remember that Allah knows all that you tell yourself and all that you secretly communicate to yourselves or quietly in private, uh, none of it goes unnoticed. Now, as some theologians have noted that, well, the, the point here is to remind Muslims themselves don't think that this dismissiveness goes unnoticed, even if fellow human beings persist in this heedlessness, it doesn't escape God's eyes. بل قالوا أضغاط أحلام بل افتراه بل هو شاعر فليأتينا بآية كما أرسل الأولون. So continuing on with at the first stage the the way that the Prophet Muhammad is received, but as we will see, it is making a larger point about the way people deal with ethical truths is that 
أبغاص أحلام It's is as if saying, well, we're, we're not sure. We're, we're not going to engage these claims on the merits, but we are going to call them fantasies. Importantly, what is being called fantasies here? What is being called fantasies are aspirations for reform and change. And what is being called fantasies is idealism. The equivalent of that is that these people are, are espousing ethical principles, a, an ethical uprightness that strike us as idealistic and un unrealistic. So they're fantasies. And because we will dismiss them as fantasies, as all claims of reform are dismissed, we are not going to engage them. And of course, the, the accusation, you know, sometimes sorcery, sometimes poetry, you know, sometimes he's a sorcerer, sometimes he's a poet, but many other sore has reminded us that this is what the Prophet is accused of. What, should, what we should pay attention to is why they're being raised in this order, in this surah, in particular. What is the, how do they relate to the message? Okay. ما أمل قبلهم من قرية أهلكناها أفهم يؤمنون that's straightforward no town no people that have been destroyed and as we will see in, in Surah Al-Anbiya destroyed by their own vanities um, in fact did believe and it is Many commentators saw in this a prediction of what will eventually occur is that, in fact, Meccan society, those people, the, the Meccan society that rejected the Prophet, will be destroyed. And it, so it's a, it, some, in retrospect, said, well, this sort of predicts to Muslims that, you know, the Meccans will never... Um, as they are presently constituted, they will never accept you, and they will never believe. And in fact, this society will have to be destroyed like others. But, you know, whether Muslims understood that from this area, uh, 
or whether that is a retro in retrospect and it's sort of a, a gloss retrospectively it's probably a, a retrospective gloss rather than something that was understood by Muslims as they received the sixth ayah here وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا قَبْلَكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا نُوحِي إِلَيْهِمْ فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ وَمَا جَعَلْنَاهُمْ جَسَدًا لَا يَأْكُلُونَ الطَّعَامُ وَمَا كَانُوا خَالِدِينَ ثُمَّ صَلَخْنَاهُمُ الْوَعَدْ فَأَنْجَيْنَاهُمْ وَمَنْ نَشَاءُ وَأَهْلَكْنَا الْمُسْرِفِينَ So, straightforward truth that Allah always establishes the message, aids the message, aids ethical truth, aids what is right using fellow human beings. If you are expecting that the truth is going to reach you through a vehicle that is somehow exceptional, you know, like modern-day human beings that fantasize that humanity will be saved by aliens from outer space. There, There is a documentary called Encounters of the Fifth Kind or something like that, uh, you know, where this, this current movement that keeps trying to commune with aliens from outer space and receive messages where aliens are telling us that how to save ourselves from destruction as human beings. This, this fantasy, by the way, is very old. It's encoded in the human psyche. And it is one of the reasons that, one of the reasons that human beings often have such a hard time embracing moral truth, even when they might find the message appealing because of an, the, 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 the egoism of the first steps. In other words, before they will actually pay attention to a moral truth, they need to get, they need to get over themselves. They need to get over their own egoism. So I'm not going to listen because... I don't like the fact that a fellow human being is conveying the message. And who is this fellow human being to be conveying a message to me? But as we will see, there's another subtle point in Surah Al-Anbiya. Another subtle point in Surah Al-Anbiya. That Surat al-Anbiya is laying the groundwork, the groundwork for. If you are expecting miracles, to believe in the message, well, that's something of the past. You have nothing other than your rationality to rely on in accepting the message now. Which is 
one of the most important transformations flagged by Surah Al-Anbiya. But the message, as we will see, is not just Ashadu anna la ilaha illallah, ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. But it is more than that. It is the message, as we will see with Sulaiman and Dawood, about justice itself. Now, you might be tempted as modern human beings to think like, well, but I'm not waiting for a miracle. I know that the age of prophets has ended and I'm not waiting for a miracle, you know, a prophet to part the Red Sea or whatever. But so many human beings, the way they negotiate their belief is that they keep waiting for that majestic, miraculous moment of experiencing the miraculous. You know, whether they wait to see the prophet in a dream or they wait to feel like they see the lights of the divine or whether they ache for a visitation by an angel or some supernatural being or you know and as if belief and and in fact so many i mean from human experience is that so many will engage in extra prayers or dhikr or fasting or what whatnot hoping for an experience like that and if it doesn't come they tire and despair and they allow indolence to set in they 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 simply think well you know if i haven't experienced this you know the, the that moment where I, I i i i feel the miraculous then maybe all that's left is skepticism and these um unfortunately you, you know the 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 soured human beings are often the biggest obstacle the soured human being the human being that has been soured because their expectations have not been met are often the biggest obstacle to moral uprightness and ethical virtue لقد أنزلنا إليكم كتابا فيه ذكركم أفلا تعقلون. We've sent you a book. That expression فيه ذكركم. The Quran will normally say ذكر من رب العالمين. Referring to the Quran as ذكر. But this particular form, fihi zikrukum. The study Quran translates it when wherein is your reminder. 
it, literally it is your reminder but why your reminder instead of simply doing what the Quran usually does which is refer to the Quran as dhikr fihi dhikrukum as, as we'll see inshallah it, it is it lays it's the introductory steps to what Surat Al-Anbiya does that in this is in fact it is like um, like a spotlight that is concentrated upon you so that you can see yourself clearly. So, fihi the krukum. So, what is it that you will see that you are being asked to reflect upon? Well, obviously, one part is your follies. But your follies, in order to understand the way that you can be properly dignified by virtue, in order to understand what immorally upright, the way that immorally upright way, immorally upright life can elevate you And this is this is linguistically it, what what it connotes that fihi al karama wal azza that it it that what you are in fact attaining is not just a belief in Allah subhanahu wa taala but a belief in Allah subhanahu wa taala as a necessary element of understanding your karama, your dignity, and your izzah, your honor. It is like saying, we are sending you a message so that you might attain a virtuous existence. An existence that is not going to be decimated by the type of things that have decimated human beings before you and will decimate human beings after you. And these types of things, as we will see, the Quran has already flagged several times, human frailties where human beings become rapidly obsessed with consumption in lieu of or in, in, in largely oblivious to principles. I will consume and I don't really care or I'm not going to pay very much attention to how my consumption affects or relates to the life of others. And and of course, 
before Muslims are immigrating to Medina, one of the very important things they have to understand is that this immigration or this migration to Medina is to create a model for how a human being can exist, in fact, in a dignified state, a dignified and a virtual state. If you create, if you, if you immigrate and human beings in Medina feel like they are degraded and humiliated and oppressed and feel no sense of self-worth, then then it's all failed. Okay, so Al Karama wal Azza Fihi Zikrukum Afala Takulun Wakam Kasamna min Koryatin Kanad Zalimatan wa and Shatna Bahadaha Kauman Akharin. فَلَمَّا أَحَسُّ بَأْسَنَا إِذْهُمْ مِنْهَا يَرْكُلُونَ لَا تَرْقُدُوا وَارْجِعُوا إِلَى مَا أُتْرِفْتُمْ فِيهِ وَمَسَاكِنُكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ, لعلكم تُسْأَلُونَ قَالُوا يَا وَيْلَنَا إِنَّا كُنَّا ظَالِمِينَ فَمَا ذَالَتْ تِلْكَ دَعْوَاهُمْ حَتَّى جَعَلْنَاهُمْ حَصِيدًا خَامِدِينَ So from 10 to 15, Once again, the Qur'an reminds us that the movement of history will always show us that societies reach a point in ethical oblivion, in ethical oblivion. Societies become ethically oblivious. And in, when they do so, societies become qura unjust societies. And when they become unjust societies, and their injustice catches up with them, sooner or later, a calamity befalls them or calamities before them. And when these calamities before them, they panic and start to run. Now here is, if you will, the, the rather um, um, I don't want to say sarcastic, it's not sarcastic, but it is um, the comment by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it says, no, why are you running? You became committed to your luxuries, to your materialistic way of life, to your comforts. You were, you were committed to this. Why don't you try to go back to these comforts, see if they help you? But in fact, of course, when things fall apart, these comforts will not help them. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and they are destroyed and they're replaced with another. Now, commentators have noted that this includes not just what has befallen Qawm Ad and Thamud and whatever, these, these societies that have been destroyed by major catastrophes, a flood, an earthquake, a, a volcano, whatnot. But this also includes societies that are destroyed by foreign invasions and societies that are destroyed by disease. Societies that are destroyed by water drying up. Societies that are destroyed by mismanagement. And the, the destruction of natural environment. So the misuse, so the, the in Surah Yusuf, السلام, Joseph, السلام, the whole part, the, the, at the heart of the surah is that this prophet teaches the Egyptians how to manage resources to avoid a disaster. You know, don't, don't spend irresponsibly when you have the days of plenty. Because when the days of hardship come, the days of drought come, you will need to, to have a saved-up surplus to help the people. Well, part of what destroys society is that they simply do not follow the type of simple management that we see in the story of Yusuf, So part of the destruction is mismanagement of resources. If Allah gives you a well or a water spring, as I, I read somewhere and I, I couldn't remember where I read it, but if Allah gives you a water spring and this water spring, you every time you slaughter animals, you throw the caucuses of the animals in the water spring, as was the pra some of the practices of old. And every time you burn corpse, you throw the, the, in the water. And as was the old practice is that you, sometimes there were water burials in, in old societies. When people die, you sort of put them in a cocoon and then you send them into the, into the water. Um, in Hindu society, you burn them first and then you send them into the water. But what happens is that you pollute that water source. And eventually that's going to catch up with you. And one of the most remarkable things is that you're talking about people that lived a thousand years ago. And they were saying, this is part of a Qur'an al When you do this to a natural resource, that is part of the injustice that Allah is pointing out to you. That will catch up with you. And Allah will effectively say, why are you running? Go back to my utriftum fear. You've indulged yourself for so long, and now you're trying to, you freak out and expect different results. Well, you're not going to get different results. This is underscored 
by this remarkable expression that is mentioned in several spots in the Quran. I think it is three times, although I might be wrong, but I think it's three times, and one of them in Surah Al-Anbiya. وَمَا خَلَقْنَا السَّمَاءَ وَالْأَرْضُ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَّ لَاعِبِينَ Whenever you see that, وَمَا خَلَقْنَا السَّمَاءَ وَالْأَرْضُ لَاعِبِينَ we, we did not create all of this in jest or meaninglessly. Among other things, Allah is flagging the intricate balance in existence, the laws that govern virtue and ethical behavior. Ethics extends to the way you use resources, the way you distribute resources, the way you relate to other human beings, and the way you relate to God. It is an entire, it is a complete ethical relationship. You can't, you can't bifurcate, you can't dissect one or separate one from the other. You can't say ethics only involves the way I relate to God, but not the way I relate to creation or the environment. You can't say Ethics is only the way I relate to other human beings, but not the way I relate to God or the environment. You can't say ethics only relates to the way I relate to the environment, but not the way I relate to other human beings to God. It is all part of a complete package. If you attempt to rip that structure apart, you will end up in a Qura an unjust society. وَلَوْ أَرَدْنَا أَنْ نَتَّخِذَ لَهُوًا لَتَّخَذْنَاهُ مِنْ لَدُنَّا إِنْ كُنَّا فَاعِلِينَ بَلْ نَقْضِبْهُ بِالْحَقِّ عَلَى الْبَاطِلِ فِي أَدْمَغُهُ فَإِذَا هُوَ ظَاهِقُ وَلَكُمُ الْوَيْلُ مِمَّا تَصِفُونَ So, That, again, rather obvious point, that Allah is serious about creation. To think that any of this is pointless, or to think that, in fact, Any of this is not governed by a, is not encompassed by an ethical system. A system of right and wrong is in fact to accuse God of frivolity. In old religious systems, God could create, or gods did create, for vain reasons. A god would get angry at another god, so would create something. 
a god would desire something, so they create something. That survived to some extent into Judaism, where God is creating because of the chosen people. But God sometimes is angry with the chosen people. And often, if you in the Old Testament, God is so angry at the chosen people that sometimes he God is is saying very nasty things to them. And God, because of God's anger, God creates or uncreates. But ultimately in Judaism, God, after having dispensed with God's purposes, got it, God got it out of his system, in other words, God turned over creation to the chosen people to manage and to guide humanity. So God sort of bailed out and said, okay, you know, when Moses was around, when David was around, when Solomon was around, I had, you know, I wrestled with David, I blessed this, this Israelite, I cursed this Israelite, but they reached a point where now it is in the hands of, to be quite honest, in rabbinic Judaism, it is in the hands of the rabbis. And I, I'm now not, and it, there's even, we're not even sure if there is a hereafter in Judaism. It's a very hotly debated issue. In Christianity, God goes through a, God's, you know, whether God creates Jesus, the Son, or the Son is co-eternal with God, is a hotly debated issue in Christianity. But again, you have remnants of this idea that um, God is, needs to deal something for things that we can't understand about the motivations of deity. So, you know, we can't really understand why God has the Holy Spirit. We can't really understand why God has the Son. We can't really understand why God needed to have the sun suffer to absolve human beings of the original sin. We, you know, we can't even understand why God had the original sin in the, in the, in the first place. And then for God to only have the suffer, the sun suffer, because in, 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 if you delve into Christian theology, it, it, even the original sin was something that God decreed. God, it didn't happen despite of God. Um, and so there are a lot of mysteries because we don't know how to understand the divine. In Islam, God is constantly, in the Quran, God repeatedly says that is accusing God of frivolity. It is very clear, whatever God creates, God has a purpose, and the purpose 
is encoded in the ethical system that God has decreed for you. So when God tells us that here is the morality that you must live by, this is the purpose. Justice is the purpose. And that is why then, that expression in ayah number 18, we cast truth against falsehood until it crushes it and behold it vanishes. The it is falsehood. This ayah is probably among the most uh, discussed in the Islamic tradition, among the most discussed. In the traditional commentaries, it's, uh, they, you find many that say, well, it basically is saying that um, the falsehood of the Meccans is going to be eventually defeated by the Prophet is predicting the victory of Muslims. But, of course, there's a problem, is that grammatically, there's, there's a tension, serious tension with understanding this ayah this way. That we cast the truth onto falsehood until falsehood vanishes. As simply a way of predicting the victory of Muslims. In Sufi Ask tradition, you get a lot of interpretations about that fundamentally would go back to the same formula that if you truly, sincerely turn to God, the light of God will conquer the darkness. But again, the ayah itself seems to be describing something at a cosmic scale. So Ibn Arabi says, well, the nature of creation itself, non-creation is a vacuum. And when Allah, creation is an affirmative act, and when Allah wills to create, what is created vanquishes the vacuum. So Ibn Arabi understands it as a more cosmic level. Describing, but again, that leaves a serious gap because the context of the ayah is talking about a purposeful existence, that Allah doesn't engage in vanities, and that there is an ongoing struggle between falsehood and truth. I think the best way to understand this is the most obvious and plain way, and that is to actually believe what it says. And what it says is, revisit the ayah again, 
بل نقذف بالحق على الباطل We throw truth upon falsehood فيدمغه So it overcomes it فإذا هو ذاهق Until falsehood vanishes ولكم الويل مما تصفون And And the study Quran says, and woe unto you for that which you describe. Okay. So what? So. If human life would have been left without divine intervention. And this is a, 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 um, a point that deserves to be thought about and studied and analyzed much more than... But if human life would have been left without divine intervention, in fact, the most base elements in the human psyche would have prevailed. But the fact that despite of the egoism and the selfishness and the self-centeredness, morality, ethics, beauty, righteousness continues, continue to survive as ideals. The fact that human beings have managed not to slaughter each other to extinction. The fact that human beings manage to commune with one another sufficiently to build civilizations is in fact because of the systematic and consistent divine intervention where although it doesn't look like it in the short span, in the, in, but Allah is always aiding and supporting what is truthful, what is virtuous, and what is beautiful. And elsewhere in the Quran, Allah says that only those who are most wise and most learned can understand this. Here, in Surah Al-Anbiya, it says something more extreme. It says, and woe to you if you, in fact, cannot understand this. I think this is the plain way on understanding this ayah is taking the ayah at its face value. But it is, as we will see inshallah, it is exactly consistent with the message of Surah Al-Anbiya. Okay. Then, of course, 
1921 and 22, Allah reminds us of what should be an obvious point, that if that this universe with its remarkably precisely calibrated system and intricate order, it all indicates a single creator who is in charge. And if it was not the case, that unitary system, even the fact, you know, that everything comes from certain elements, or that it would not be that the nature of a, it's like the creation testifies to the, to the oneness of the creator. Okay. No, uh, twenty up to twenty six and twenty seven. Um, it and, and I'm I'm skipping ahead just so we we can have the opportunity to finish Surah Al Anbiya. Um, I'm not skipping anything you know important. I'm, I'm just <laughs> don't rush. No, no. It just I add that I I not much for me to say about. That it it again talks about especially uh, that as Muslims are going to migrate to Medina, they will come into full contact with non-Muslims in Mecca. They were somewhat sheltered from contact with non-Muslims, but with Christians and Jews. I mean, but uh, we notice especially in the late Meccan ayat that or late Meccan saw that there is a repeated reference to this whole notion of God having a son, uh, which repeatedly the Quran um, uh, challenges as, uh, as an, an absurdity, and the tribes of Khuza'a, which used to, the, the tribes of Khuza'a that were, did not live in Mecca, but outside of Mecca, which believed that uh, the angels were Allah's daughters and worshipped angels. Again, that is um, challenged indirectly in, in, the, in this context. Okay, until we get to the most fascinating ayah, 30. أَلَمْ يَرُوا الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا أَنَّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضَ كَانَتَ رَطْقًا فَفَطَقْنَاهُمَا وَجْعَلْنَا مِنَ الْمَاءِ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَيْءٍ أَفَلَا يُؤْمِنُونَ 
The study Quran says, Have those who disbelieve not considered that the heavens and the earth were sown together and we rent them asunder and we made every living thing from water. Will they not then believe? The classical Tafsir text had the hardest time with this ayah because it literally says that everything was one thing that all matter was all one so, and we ripped it apart and so you get in the traditional tafsir some a lot of very um uh, outlandish uh, explanations as to what that this could possibly mean now of course in the modern age the meaning is rather obvious and that is we know in modern science that everything was hydrogen and from this single element literally matter was ripped asunder for everything to be created the stars the galaxies the the the, the planets and so on and so forth and for those who focus on the relationship on, on the scientific miracles of the Quran, this is one of the of the ayat that gets a lot of attention. Um, the pre-moderns struggled a lot to try to make sense of it because how how could it have been that the earth and and you 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 know how could it be that the earth and, and heavens were all one and then they were ripped apart and so some, some of them get into some very fantastical things but it's remarkable I mean it, it is truly remarkable if, with what we know at least about the origins of, of matter and and the way galaxies developed and so on uh, and the the what Grace was talking about, and we made from water everything living, which is again a, a remarkable reference. Okay. Notice in the same vein in thirty-two, and we made the sky a, like a protecting a protective ceiling the idea that the sky in in pre-modern tefasir in classical tefasir they speculated well maybe the because the sky didn't look like it protected from anything i mean they, they had no notion that the the, the what enveloped the earth protected people from harmful rays and sunlight and all of that stuff so they they would speculate about things like well maybe that the the skies it's harder for demons to penetrate the sky um maybe the the clouds are used by angels to fight off demons. I mean, you get some really outlandish things, but they're all speculative. 
uh, again, it's a, a very remarkable Quranic expression. The fact that we are enveloped by an atmosphere that protects us. Um, and it, it, notice that it is stated in the Quran as if pondering upon these realities would necessarily lead one to believe. For the pre-modern mind, that they, they puzzled a lot with that, or they, they struggled a lot with that. Well, if we don't even understand, how is it that they were all one thing and then they were ripped apart? And if we don't really understand, how is it that the sky protects us from anything? So why is it, would it necessarily lead to belief? Amazingly, I mean, for the modern mind, I think it's easier to understand. All of this note is an introduction to the narrative on prophets. And the reminder, this is in um, 34, the reminder that for those who are tempted, as human beings have always been tempted throughout history, to imagine that those that they love very much or those that they respect very much, that they, in fact, didn't, do not die, that they're alive or continue living somewhere. The, the Quran challenges that and disabuses that very clearly. That the, not even the Prophet, and this of course, you know, we've seen this with the whole, uh, with Christianity and Jesus, that the Prophet is not eternal, no human being is eternal, and every soul will taste death. And that in between or before death, you are tested with good and with hardship. And ultimately, you, you return to Allah. Kullu nafsun maut, that every soul will taste death is repeated three times in the Quran. One of them is in Surah Al-Anbiya. Um, was this why some companions thought Surah Al-Anbiya um, contained a, a, a strong reminder of death and made them disinterested in material things? So from 35... To 43, it comes back to the Prophet ﷺ, and Allah says, you know, I, I know that they mock you. And they say, so is this the man who's going to 
who who is challenging your way of uh, your your way of life, and. Ayah 37 is, is reminder which will will be picked up will be uh, continued in, in Surah Al-Anbiya in a second a reminder of how short-sighted human beings and how often um, um Ajal is is a short-sighted and how do I put it? Um, restless human beings are that they consistently challenge you and say you are talking about things. So when any of that is going to happen? So this this constant draw to what is immediate rather than what is wise or the the a deeper view of things um and this reminder that they will come to know the truth because the truth cannot be avoided as accountability cannot be avoided and punishment cannot be avoided and the messengers before you were mocked and were persecuted but that is the natural way of things that is what you should expect and not be surprised of and then ultimately that reminder that it is there is no God but God, and all fate belongs in the hand of God. Until we get to Ayah 44, So, the problem it's a repeated one, is that human beings enjoy blessings, enjoy whatever is given to them until they become accustomed to it and feel entitled to it. Remarkable expression until they take it for granted and no longer feel that they owe anyone or anything, anyone anything because of what they enjoy. But then this expression, this is uh, 44. Let's see how the state translates it. it. Says, do they not consider how we've come upon the land, reducing it from its outlying regions? Is it they 
who shall prevail. Again, classical commentators had the hardest time with this portion of the ayah. What does it mean to say that we are that we are uh, how did they put it? Yeah, that we are reducing reducing the earth from its outlying regions. What it's actually, I don't like the translation because what it's literally saying is that we are coming and we are, it's as if um, eroding the earth from its outer edges. So classical commentators proposed, because they, they couldn't really understand what this meant, and they proposed, well, maybe what it's saying is to the Meccans, don't you see how more and more people are converting to Islam, and so you're losing territory. Of course, that interpretation runs into a lot of problems because A, at the time Surah Al-Anbiya is revealed, it's revealed at a time when Muslims are persecuted and it's not the case that more and more people are entering Islam. And it's not the case that the Meccans at the time that Surah Al-Anbiya is revealed are losing territory. But second, and perhaps more importantly, it says, that we come to the earth and we erode it from its edges. Why would it speak to the Meccans and say we're eroding the earth from the edges? So, and some, you know, resorted to very... Um, metaphorical interpretations. They said, well, maybe the Ard is a metaphor for the base human self, and, you know, it gets pretty forced. Those who write about, again, the scientific miracles of the Quran have noted that in what we know about modern geography is, in fact, the size of the earth shrinks. And through a certain amount of, of, the, of the edges of the earth goes under sea. Um, and in my view, that's probably what's intended by this. But we notice here, and this is something I was, I'm going to come back to at the, at the end. We notice here that Surah Al-Anbiya lays out a number of scientific facts that if properly pondered, it, it would become clear that the author of this Quran is not human. Who would have known when the Quran was was revealed that mass was 
single, there was a single hydrogen mass from which everything developed. And in fact, it was the ripping of this hydrogen, or what developed from this hydrogen, that produced everything. Anyway, these scientific facts, in my view, it's not a coincidence that they occur in Surat al-Anbiya because Surat al-Anbiya is also going to point to an equally incontrovertible, equally decisive truth about ethics and morality that must be understood by human beings if they want to, in fact, pursue a virtuous order. And this is intimately connected with the progression in the role and purpose of prophecy. Prophets are not just simply people who come and they convey a message, believe in God. But the very progression of prophets and the variety of roles that prophets play educate us about moral truth in existence that are as absolute. Remember, it's like Ibn Arabi got half of it right when he said that when Allah, that there's a vacuum and then when Allah creates, that's the truth that vanquishes falsehood that you know when you create matter that matter vanquishes the vacuum the other half of it is the equally uncon incontrovertible truth about the nature of an ethical order when it confronts falsehood So right after So right after we are reminded of that how human beings drift into a sense of entitlement Then, and a, a brief reminder that, you, that human beings often don't come to their senses until, as the Quran say, وَلَئِنْ مَسَّتْهُمْ نَفْحَةً مِنْ عَذَابِ رَبِّكَ لَيَقُولُونَ وَيْلَنَا إِنَّا كُنَّا ظَالِمِينَ That human beings will often just drift into oblivion until they're touched with a little bit of hardship. And then they, they remember, but unfortunately, they only remember momentarily. So they'll wake up for a brief period of time and then drift back again. Uh, yesterday in the reflection group when we were talking about the pandemic, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I was actually sort of amused 
by how many people I know that uh, had forgotten God a long time ago, and, and I'm, I'm talking about people in, in the Middle East, um, started getting frantically religious uh, at the beginning of the pandemic because they were scared. And then I noticed that they went back again to posting their idiotic stuff um, now that they think the pandemic is over. You know, then Grace tells me that there is something called the Delta or whatever. Um, so maybe it's not over. Huh? Variant. No, Delta variant? Uh, yeah, so, I don't know. It's... it's Okay. Um, then we come to 47. We shall set the just scales for the day of the resurrection. No. Okay. <laughs> You, the, it is as if the scales of justice are awaiting in the hereafter. But the way that this is phrased in Ayah 47, it communicates clearly your fate is to confront the scales of justice. Then a priori, shouldn't the scales of justice become your concern now? The way it is phrased it is as if this is all where we're heading. There's no escape from it. And this is underscored that, in fact, nothing will escape the scales of justice in the hereafter. Not even habba min khardal, not even the smallest thing. And this is right before it's going to start talking about the prophets. Now, before you meet such an exacting system of justice, where not even the smallest thing escapes, as Al-Ghazali says in, in, in commenting on this verse, It is a, a if, if this is what you understand and what you believe, then it becomes something of insanity, or it becomes sheer insanity 
not to try to minimize and mitigate your responsibility before this, these exacting scales of justice in the hereafter by achieving an as close an approximation of justice in the here now. So in other words, you are lessening your responsibility as much as possible by living up to that demand of justice now rather than waiting till the hereafter where it is a ruthlessly exacting system with no reprieve. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So now, Surah Al-Anbiya is going to switch to talking or begin talking about the Prophets. Um, and it will address some extent or another, uh, the the prophets Musa and Ibrahim and Lut and Nuh and Yunus and Ayub and Zakaria and Zilkif will will comment on and Isa alayhum salam. But before I, I jump into this, just a couple of things that I um, um, forgot. Um, in um, in Ayah 11, when I mentioned that um, I, I mentioned that uh, that Allah allows towns or or communities that have been become overcome with injustice to be destroyed, and I said that the the destruction could be even not just natural disasters, but um, even foreign invasions. Um, what's very interesting is that the in the context of of this area, there is an often reported um, story. Um, again, about a a. Um, a community in Yemen uh, that was a descendants or came from the tribe of Humayr, um, and the 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 community were the cities of Hudur and Qulaba, and the Hudur and Qulaba became corrupt and affluent and rich and corrupt and eventually reportedly they 
assassinate a prophet uh, whose name was Shu'aib bin um, uh, Muhdam. Not the Shu'aib, the, the famous Shu'aib, but a less famous Shu'aib. Uh, not the, the famous Arab Shu'aib that was uh, sent to Qawm Salih, but Shu'aib bin Muhdam reportedly existed in the in the, in these communities in Hudur and Qulaba. And the, the way that Allah punishes them, according to the, the traditional sources, is that Allah inspires the emperor of Persia, Bukht Nasr, to invade the, the Yemen and to invade this community and to destroy it. And I, I just thought it's it's interesting that they that they often report that the punishment is to inspire a try a, a force, not a not a believing force, not a Muslim force, but to to invade or the a less unjust or Bakhut Nasr actually was reportedly a, a lawgiver and a just ruler for his time um, to. To invade an unjust uh, polity. So the other thing that I um, forgot to mention in Ayah 37, where where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Khulqan insanu min ajal." A lot of times, this is translated. Let's see if the the let's see if, if it's yeah. A lot of times it's translated like in the study Quran. The study Quran says, "Man was created of haste." Um. Well, the study of Quran says man was created of haste, uh, but a lot of translations will even say that man was created hastily or quickly, or that the creation. Uh, and of course, the, the 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 meaning is that because man was created or human beings were created quickly, um, that human beings have that characteristic characteristic is that they're hasty and that they are often quick to judgment or quick to emotions um what i want to to point out is that this expression is actually idiomatic it it does not mean that human beings were created quickly or hastily um, in classical Arabic if there is a lot of something so for instance you say you could say someone anta um, min you are of play meaning that you play a lot so, خُلِقَ الْإِنسَانُ مِنْ عَجَلِ means 
that a, a common characteristics of human beings is that they're hasty, not that they've been created hastily. Because I've, I've often seen Muslims get this wrong, and um, even in Islamic centers and so on, you'll, you'll find, and that's because they're, they're mixing modern Arabic with classical Arabic. Uh, in, in classical Arabic, it's an idiomatic expression. In modern Arabic, it's something else. Which, um, also, in some old Arabic forms, like in the uh, linguistic practice of the of the Yemenite Humayirs, Ajal meant tin, meant clay. So you could say Khulqal Insan and Ajal could could mean human beings were created from clay. Um, it's more likely that it means it has the idiomatic meaning, in my opinion, than the meaning of clay. But it's more likely that it just the idiomatic meaning that human beings are a common characteristics of human beings is in fact their hastiness. Okay. So let's go back to. Where were, where did we love? Okay. So first, we'll start out with a very brief mention of Musa wa Harun. وَلَقَدْ آتَيْنَا مُوسَى وَهَارُونَ الْفُرْقَانَ وَضِيَاءَ وَذِكْرًا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ Notice, we, the study of Quran says, we indeed gave unto Moses and Aaron, Harun, the criterion and a radiant light and a reminder for the reverend. Al-Furqan, um, Here, Al-Furqan means not necessarily the laws of Moses, but the, the, the primordial, the, 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 the basic and primordial and the fundamental moral laws found in the Torah. So, وَلَقَدْ أَتَيْنَا مُوسَى وَهَارُونَ الْفُرْقَانِ It's like saying, وَذِكْرَى لِلْمُتَّقِينَ We've given them a light and a criterion in the sense of moral truth that is found in the revelation to Moses and Harun. And notice, where, with the mention of Musa and, and Harun, it simply reminds us of these fundamental moral truths that go back to Musa and Ibrahim, but it doesn't mention any of the 
stories or any of the, nothing about miracles, nothing about the confrontation with the Pharaoh, with Musa and Harun. Rather, it goes then from Musa and Harun, it goes back to Ibrahim. And the dynamic involving another natural and eternal and fundamental truth. before Musa and Harun. And that moral truth that is brought up in the narrative about Ibrahim السلام, even be, is before Ibrahim is a prophet. He is a youth. He's a young man at this point. As it's clear from the revelation itself, and as a young man, he confronts his people with an obvious illogical reality in their lives, an obvious clear fallacy. The fallacy is represented in that he destroys the, the statue, he goes to the, the, the biggest idol, he puts the axe in the arms of the idol, and when they bring Ibrahim to be questioned, and Ibrahim says the logical thing is that the biggest idol destroyed all the smaller the smaller idols because there are no competitors as a form of taking vengeance on the lesser idols and then says to them and ask him ask him if it's true or not now here's some subtlety So, it seems that what Ibrahim presents them with is a tight, well-argued, logical case. This is 64. So they actually are first struck by the argument and start rethinking their position. They think, well, maybe Ibrahim didn't do it. According to some commentators that they, some say, well, maybe we shouldn't push this case against Ibrahim because it raises some uncomfortable facts. But then, what happens after 64, after they, they, ha they start having second thoughts about accusing Ibrahim? Then 
So, but then they, they had second thoughts to their second thoughts. They changed their mind. How dangerous it would be to let Ibrahim off the hook and to accept the narrative that the biggest idol, in fact, destroyed the lesser idols. In this is that when you are challenging the, the old, well-established beliefs in unjust societies by pointing out their, the clear error in the ways of this society, the clear inequities or the clear illogical points or the clear injustice, what will happen is what Surah Al-Anbiya was warning about from the beginning is that even if in the short term you have some resonance, even if the, the, the elite in the short term says, well, maybe you have a point, let's think about it. What invariably happens is that they go back and worry about their privileges and worry about what the system of life that they've established allows them to enjoy. And because they went back Although Ibrahim says to them, Uffin lakum, Walima ta'buduna min duni Allah, afala ta'kuloon, Uffin lakum, Walima ta'buduna min duni Allah, you know, this is so ridiculous. That system that you have is so ridiculous. Don't you have, don't you reason, don't you think, afala ta'kuloon? Qalu harrikuhu, wansuru alihatukum, alihatakum. In kuntum fa'ileen, burn them, kill them. And as I said before, the, a lot of the reports say that they go to his father Azar and, uh, and the father said, according to some reports, that the mother is not happy about the killing of her son and Azar is not happy because he, he had very high hopes for Ibrahim. Um, this is the son that he thought was going to inherit him but ultimately, to uphold the order, Azar signs off and says, yes, I understand. It is necessary to kill my son. And, you know, depending on, you know, nothing reliable, but some reports say that he was crying and all of that stuff. So anyway, so the first narrative, Ibrahim leads an act of destruction. The act of destruction challenges the old system. The old system responds to the act of destruction with another act of destruction. You've destroyed our idols. We're going to kill you. At this point, 
why doesn't Ibrahim die? Because of divine intervention. It is only the divine intervention that saves Ibrahim. But even when throwing Ibrahim in, the hell, in fire, and according to traditions, they put him in the fire for hours, but he didn't burn. And some traditions say that what seemed to envelop him was like a protective layer, and the fire couldn't reach him. Other traditions say the fire looked like fire, but it was no longer fire. It lost its heat element. <coughs> anyway, Allahu Alam. But it is only the divine intervention that saves Ibrahim. So pay attention. Act of violence to challenge the beliefs, although the violence made an excellent logical point, ultimately the response was violence. We're going to kill you. It took divine intervention that saved Ibrahim. Now, they saw the miracle of the fire. Did they believe at that point? No, they didn't. Sometimes that type of challenge, although it's entirely logical, even ethical, but when it clashes against the egos and the biases of human beings, there is no way of reaching them. Ibrahim, then at this point, Surah Al-Anbiya tells us that Lut and Ibrahim both leave this town. It, it doesn't, it is not guided. They leave this town and they go to a blessed land. Now, the reports say this blessed land, some say it is Sham, most say it is, say, it's Palestine, some say it's Iraq, you know, Ibrahim moved around a lot. And he went to Sham, and he went to Iraq, and he went to Palestine. So, it could be, you know, Allah on him. Okay. And... Ibrahim and Lut then immigrate and we know that with Ibrahim it is not the initial act of violent rebellion that will spell any success for Ibrahim. But after maturity, Ibrahim will lead a slow incremental process that resembles very much what the Prophet Muhammad will go through, in which he will in fact have levels of success. But the irony is, although Surah Al-Anbiya doesn't tell us this, 
But the irony is, is that we know is that the most successful of all of Ibrahim's act is to go to an isolated arid desert and leave his wife and his son Ismail and pray to Allah that centuries later it will become a center. So it leaves you reflecting. So on the one hand, ethical truth were reached by Ibrahim salam, even before prophecy. But for the act of divine intervention, Ibrahim would have been killed. It was not the destruction of the idols that brought the greatest success, but the migration from unjust lands and the ultimate act of planting a seed in the most unlikely of places and letting go. Okay, hold on to that. So, but Ibrahim has another success, which Surah Al-Anbiya points to, وَوَهَبْنَا لَهُ إِسْحَاقَ وَيَعْقُوبَ نَافِلَةً وَكُلًّا جَعَلْنَّا صَالِحِينَ وَجَعَلْنَاهُمْ أَئِمَّةً يَهْدُونَ بِأَمْرِنَا وَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْهُمْ فِعْلَ الْخَيْرَاتِ وَإِقَامِ الصَّلَاةِ وَإِيتَاءَ الزَّكَاةِ وَكَانُوا لَنَا عَابِدِينَ And this is 72 and 73. Ishaq and Yaqub. son of Ibrahim and Yaqub, the second son of Ibrahim, the younger son of Ibrahim, and Yaqub, Jacob, the son of Ishaq. So, we know about Ismail, it's not mentioned in Surah Al-Anbiya, but Ishaq and Yaqub is another success that will not materialize in his lifetime. But then it takes us to Lut. And it simply tells us that وَلُوطًا أَتَيْنَاهُ حُكْمًا وَعِلْمًا وَنَجَّيْنَاهُ مِنَ الْقَرْيَةِ الَّتِي كَانَتْ تَعْمَلُ الْخَبَائِثِ إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا قَوْمٍ سُوءٍ فَاسِقِينَ وَأَدْخَلْنَاهُ فِي رَحْمَتِنَا إِنَّهُ مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ So as to Lut, it tells us with Lut, we save them from the village that the corrupt, foul village. And it moves on. But we saved Lut from the corrupt, foul village. Then it takes us to Noah. 
And then it tells us that Nuh called upon us. وَنُوحًا إِذْ نَادَى مِنْ قَبْلُ فَاسْتَجَبْنَا لَهُ Nuh called upon us. فَنَجَّيْنَاهُ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ الْكَرْبِ الْعَظِيمِ So we saved them from the great calamity. And we know here the reference is to the flood. And إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا قَوْمَ سُوءٍ فَأَغْرَقْنَاهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ So we drowned. So was Lut with Ibrahim, sorry, with, uh, with Ibrahim, we are not told about a destruction. We are told, in fact, about birth. It started out with, his, with an act of challenging the disbelief or this belief system with Ibrahim committing the act of destruction. Allah intervening to save Ibrahim, and then an incremental ongoing process. With Lut, it took an act of destruction by Allah, and simply Lut is saved, and he lived as Abid, as, as a worshiper with whoever that was it. And Nuh, again, Allah intervened to save Nuh with the flood and his followers. Okay. Then at this point, it takes us to Dawood and Sulaiman. And The picture it gives us of Dawood and Sulaiman would cause anyone paying attention pause. Because it doesn't start out by telling us about their powers or their miracles. It starts out by telling us something about their justice. So it says that Dawood and Sulaiman are presented with a legal case, a legal case about justice. What is the legal case that they're presented with? Well, first, Dawood, David, is the one that is going to adjudicate the case in the first instance. And it is a man who owned sheep, the sheep that belonged to this farmer transgressed upon the land of the farmer's neighbor and destroyed the farmer's crops. This is an issue of liability. You failed to control your sheep, you failed to fence your sheep in so that they don't walk around and um, transgress upon your neighbors. And as a result, your neighbors sustained a serious financial loss by losing his crops. So Sulaiman, I mean, sorry, so Dawood, who is a, a, a just king, 
contrary to the way Dawood is often portrayed in the Bible, as rather a, a often, I want to say, bloodthirsty tyrant um, in the Quran, Dawood is a just king. Dawood says, well, in compensation, the neighbor, you, your sheep should go to the neighbor. Money, currency, is not common in that age. And this person has sustained a loss. They need to be compensated. It's like, well, you don't have currency to pay. Well, you pay with your sheep. So the sheep goes to the neighbor. At this point, Suleiman interjects and says, no, there's a more just solution. And the just solution is that if it, the problem is, is that if you give the sheep of this farmer to the neighbor, then that farmer will be sheepless. He lost his stock. And that, in turn, will be a very serious loss to that farmer. A better solution is to achieve justice without destroying the fortunes of either party. So what we're going to do is that instead of giving the sheep to the aggrieved party, you're going to simply have the aggrieved party borrow the sheep. So the farmer who caused the damage will be responsible for fixing the damage, i.e. planting new crop. In the meanwhile, the farmer who sustained the damage will have the right to sheathe the sheep, in other words, to sell the wool, and to, if there's goat milk, they're going to use the goat milk. And this way, both parties will survive this crisis. And that expression, فَفَهَّمْنَاهَا Sulaiman. this is 79. The Sulaiman study Quran says, we made Solomon to understand it. Very little, literal. Um, that in this context that we've inspired a particular or a superior understanding of how to achieve justice to Sulaiman. But but to both of them We've given them knowledge and wisdom. So, you reflect upon this and you say, wow, okay, so there is justice. But there's superior justice. There's 
justice that where you achieve compensation without regard to the consequences of all the parties concerned. But there is justice where you must worry about the consequences upon the, all the parties concerned. And why tell us about this after the brief mention of Musa, the story of Ibrahim and the idols, and the brief mention of Lut and the brief mention of Noah. Then you notice that after telling this, this story, the Quran reminds us of something that we already know from an earlier revelation that among the blessings that Allah gave Dawood is the mountains and the birds are supplicate their Lord with him. وَسَخَّرْنَا مَعَ دَاوُودِ الْجِبَالَ يُسَبِّحْنَا وَالطَّيْرَ وَكُنَّا فَاعْلِينَ Okay. Now, Muslim theologians spent a lot of time talking about how is it that they supplicated with him. And most said that it is not that they supplicated with him, meaning that he would start supplicating and they would start supplicating, but simply that Dawood was in synchronicity with the supplication of the birds and the mountains. In my view, there's an added meaning. And I rely on this on pre-Islamic poetry. Justice causes nature to sink. It is the ability of Dawood to achieve superior justice that literally makes the cosmos celebrate Dawood. It is, put it differently, but only by being in complete synchronicity with the environment will you achieve that level of justice. It is as if only by being able to understand that the birds supplicate and the mountains supplicate will you achieve that level of justice. Okay, but that level of justice comes not through acts of destruction, but 
through acts of construction. So Dawood invents something. They say in the, a lot of the sources that what he invents are chain mails, or the protective gear or shields that you use in warfare. Others say that he invents various ways that human beings protect themselves from the elements. But clearly, Dawood achieves technological advancements. And it is an error to simply think that is, uh, it is not the, an act of miracle for Dawood to achieve technological advancements. All technological advancements are an inspiration from God. All technological advancements are an inspiration from God to those who deserve it. Those who care about advancing human sciences, Allah will respond in kind. And with Sulaiman, we are reminded that Sulaiman, who strives again in the path of justice, who is a, a higher form of justice, or more intricate form of justice, we are told a complete mastery of natural elements, so that Allah facilitates the wind under Sulaiman's command, and even demons, al-shayateen, some have suggested, وَمِنَ الشَّيَاطِينَ مَنْ يَغُوصُونَ لَهُ suggested that here, it, especially in Sufi-esque literature, they, they read this metaphorically to mean forms of controlling your inner demons. I, I think that Sulaiman did control demons. I mean, I think that literally did control demons. But the, the point is, why are we being told about this in Surah Al-Anbiya in this context? Okay. Now, notice with Sulaiman and Dawood, we didn't get any reference to Allah with Ibrahim, the Quran says, Najjayna, we saved them from the fire. With Lut, we saved Najjayna, we saved them from the punishment that befell his people. With Nuh, Najjayna, we saved them from the flood. And then it comes to Sulaiman and Dawood, and there is no Najjayna. We didn't, there's no reference to save them from anything. From Ibrahim to Sulaiman and Dawood, it took a long time. From Musa 
to Sulaiman and Dawood, it took a long time. What enables Sulaiman and Dawood to achieve levels of justice, higher levels of justice? Power. Ibrahim struggled to attain power, but lived struggling with that. Lut was powerless. Nuh was powerless. Sulaiman and Dawood, through technical know-how and control of nature, had power. But they turned this power towards justice. Then it takes us to a very different model, Ayyub. Ayyub, no major confrontations, no major followers, no destruction, no hijra. Ayyub is a prophet but is a rather lonely and isolated prophet. Ayyub loses his wealth, loses his children, loses his health, and all he has is a loyal wife. And at that point, when everything is very dark, and Ayyub has struggled for a very long time. Wa Ayyub is nada rabbahu anni masaniya durru wa anta arhamur rahimin. Ayyub turns to Allah and says, I am suffering and you are the most merciful. There's no one else to turn to. It doesn't say it doesn't say we saved him, it says So we answered that prayer. And we replaced all that he lost. Then it takes us to Ismail, who's mentioned after Ishaq, and mentioned Ismail wa Idris wa the Kif wa kullun min al-sabirin. And it simply tells us, underscores their patience. Okay, so Ismail, we know who Ismail is. Idris, yeah. 
He is Achnuch ben Noach, Enoch, in the Bible. And the Kif, there is a long debate about who the Kif is. The honest truth is, we don't know. Um, the Kif, other than to, as many commentators say, that he is a prophet that we are not told much about. Some authorities try to find a parallel for him in the Bible, but all of that is speculative. Um, and neither here nor there. But what is underscored this element of sabr, in long-term perspective, without further elaboration, other than what we, what is known about them from the Quranic revelation. But rather it then moves on to the Nun, and the Nun is Yunus, Jonah. And puts us in the picture with Jonah, who, unlike Ismail and Idris and the Kif, who were marked for their patience and endurance, then known as we've talked about before, or Yunus, gives up at some point and says, my people are done for. And, as we've talked about before, storms out. And here again, the word فَنَجَّيْنَاهُ returns. We've saved them. وَذَنُّونِ إِذَّهَبَ مُغَاضِبًا فَظَنَّ أَنْ لَنْ نَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ فَنَادَى فِي الظُّلُمَاتِ أَنَّ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنْتَ سُبْحَانَكْ إِنِّي كُنْتُ مِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ So, he is, as we know, swallowed by the whale, although the whale is not mentioned here, it just says that he supplicates us in the darkness. Because of earlier revelation, we, we fill in the blanks, so to speak, and say that, well, the darkness is in the darkness of being in the will, and he supplicates the Lord, and he says, I have been unfair, forgive me. And, فَاسْتَجَبْنَا لَهُ وَنَزَّلْنَاهُ مِنَ الْغَمِّ وَكَذَلِكَ مُنْجِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ So, we answered his prayer, وَنَزَّلْنَاهُ مِنَ الْغَمِّ I want to see how this is translated. You know, it's supposed to be translated in a very literal, literal way, but what the hell? Um, we answer them and save them from grief. Very little. Okay. So, we save them. But save them in Surah Al Anbiya, we're not, the hoot is not emphasized, the whale is not emphasized. What is emphasized is the predicament of sitting in darkness, utterly hopeless, after having despaired in God, sitting in darkness, utterly hopeless, and you are saved from utter despair. 
You're not saved from a flood. You're not saved from a storm that hails down stones on people. You're not saved from a fire. You're saved from utter despair. Then it moves on to Zechariah. And Zechariah is nada rabbahu. Again, he calls upon his Lord. And calls upon his Lord saying, I am without progeny. Fastajabna lahu. Here again, like Ayyub fastajabna, we answered. His call. We answered this call with his son John. We know that John, the fate of John is that he will be executed. Hold on to that. Just we'll come back to it. Then, oh, I, I, I forgot. Nun was was the noon, was job. It said when Allah says, "Fanajinahu min al ghami," we answered, we we saved them from despair. Wakazalika nunjil mu'minin, and this is how we save believers. Okay, then with Isa alayhi salam, and it doesn't even name Isa, Isa, but we say, وَالَّتِي أَحْصَنَتْ فَرْجَهَا فَنَفَخْنَ فِيهَا مِنْ رُوحِنَا this woman doesn't say Maryam of the miraculous birth and we blessed Isa okay so let's go back and think about our prophets oh before we do that in 92, Then it underscores that all of these prophets are but of you, and you are of them. You are a single ummah. And I am your Lord. So it is there couldn't be a more direct way of emphasizing that everything that they've gone through as said in Surah Al-Anbiya is relevant for us. So, Ibrahim starts with challenging the idols and destroying the idols and it requires a divine intervention. And it's a, a a fantastical intervention to save Ibrahim. But after Ibrahim 
we get another intervention with Lut. Najayna Ibrahim, when Najayna Lut, we've saved Lut. When Najayna Nuh, we've saved Nuh. Miraculous, miraculous, miraculous. Then justice that took a long time to achieve but required mastery of nation of nature and fairness and equity with nature. Dawood and Sulaiman. But then very human predicaments. Eunice no miracle that destroys his people, but a different type of miracle. In Surah Al-Anbiya, we're told the miracle is we've saved Eunice from his own psychology. Despair and further despair in absolute darkness. And it's as if to underscore, the story of Eunice is not about Eunice, it's about you guys. That type of miracle is open to you, Allah saving you from despair. Remember, again, no mention of the whale, the hoot, here in Surah Al-Anbiya. Ayyub, a very human istajabna we've answered his prayer from being very sick with Zachariah istajabna we've answered their prayer his prayer doesn't mention the miracles it just says was tajabna we've answered his prayers and So, you notice in the narrative of the prophets, you go from the miraculous to a de-emphasis of miracles. Or a reduced emphasis of miracles. It is as if telling Muslims, don't expect the type of miracles that were bestowed upon Ibrahim and upon Lut and Nuh. The, the evolutionary steps are towards human self-reliance. What you can expect is from Najayna to Najayna min al-Gham, Allah could save you from despair, and istajabna, and Allah could answer your prayers. That's one. Two, know that when you confront people with their irrationality and with their fallacies 
and their moral bankruptness. Don't expect that they're going to take you in with open arms. You Muslims have seen what happens. They persecute you. But keep in mind that if you initiate violence, the response could be violent. And while with Ibrahim, Allah saved them from the burning fire through a miracle, this is not what you can rely on. If Allah helps you, this is because of Allah's blessings upon you. That is not something you're entitled to. Don't simply expect it. Think thoroughly and fully. Your ultimate objective is at the level of public leadership if you can't achieve the justice of Suleiman in synchronicity with nature, then at a minimum, you achieve the justice of Dawood. But in both cases, equity is meaningless unless it, it incorporates a full understanding of nature and creation. There is no such thing as I'm going to be just but without understanding creation and the demands of creation because that's what, that's khalqullah, that's God's. It's not yours. Including not just the birds and the mountains but bodies, psychology, physiology, all the, the things that Allah created. You can't ignore it. At the individual level, the way that I intervene could be in the same way that I intervene with Ayub, that I intervene with Yunus, that I, I, I could save you from despair, I could answer your prayer, I could even answer a prayer for a progeny, like the, notice the miracles are de-emphasized when it comes to here in Surah Al-Anbiya in particular. But then, and the patience that you need is the long-term view of Ismail and of um, what's his name? I forgot. Uh, um, Idris of Ismail and Idris, and as little as we know as of the the Kif, but what little exists that have been reported about the Kif is. A, a, in, a um, how to put it? the the wisdom of age, meaning doing something 
understanding that results can take a very long time. Okay. And this is all wrapped up in I am not telling you the stories of prophets to entertain you. And I'm not telling you these stories so that to, to make the obvious point that the kuffar don't like what, he, what your prophet has to say and is persecuting you while well, you're living through it. But so that you understand that there is a single sunnah to moral truth that all the prophets resonate with from the beginning. And so studying the wisdom of what the prophets brought and the moral examples he set is critical for the mission that you're on. فمن يعمل من الصالحات وهو مؤمن فلا كفران لسعيه وإن له كاتبون a fundamental principle those who are believers and do good يعمل من الصالحات not belief not simple ibadah but actually do good the law of where Allah defeats falsehood with goodness is that that will not be ignored or forgiven, for, forgotten. Then Surah, then Surah Al-Anbiya here mentions something that was already mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf. This is 96. Ya'juj wa ma'juj Hatta idha futihat ya'juj wa ma'juj wa hum min kulli hadabin yansilun. Now, I'm going to defer talking in, in more um, detail about Ajuj and Mujuj until Surah Al-Kahf, uh, translated in the study Quran as Gog and Magog are unleashed and they rush down from every hill. But I'll say this, part of what you find in the Islamic tradition about Ya'juj and Ma'juj is confused or yeah confused with the biblical tradition because Ya'juj and Ma'juj or Gog and Magog are in the biblical tradition and they're supposed to be things that in in the biblical tradition it's a it's a it's a part of the apocalyptic narrative that takes place at the, at, the, at the final time. But in the Quran, 
there is Surah Al-Kaf and Surah Al-Anbiya. And in Surah Al-Anbiya, we'll, we'll leave Surah Al-Kaf now. But in Surah Al-Anbiya, it simply says, Ya'juj wa Ma'juj will be unleashed. And the connotation is that it will be close to at the end. In Muslim, in, 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 in classical commentaries, there, there have been tons of speculations about who are the Ajuj and Majuj that will be unleashed at the end. Uh, and that they will come down in droves. Um, which apparently will cause an enormous amount of destruction and an enormous amount of strife. And some have said, you know, have just said these are the Mongols, these are the Crusaders. Uh, some have even said these are the Turks. Um, obviously, before the Turks converted to Islam. Um, and uh, some in the modern age said these are going to be the forces of China. Uh, invading Muslim lands, causing enormous amount of destruction towards the end of times. Um, some of the more fantastical suggestions, or interesting maybe suggestions, uh, some said that these are going are viruses um, that will sweep through humanity, uh, and that Jews and Majuz are not human tribes. There's a whole debate in the Islamic tradition whether the Jews and Majuj are human or not human, whether they're... Uh, some fellow that I've read in the modern age said that they're, they're even aliens that are going to come from the heavens and uh, invade. Um, I think all we can say is that towards the ends of time or at least that's what I believe is that it, there is going to be some major event that causes some major trauma whether the Jews and Majuj are American forces invading the Middle East as when uh, the US invaded Iraq some Iraqi writers said whether it is some future invasion with my Chinese, whether it was the Mongols, whether it was... All of this is just... We are speculating. You know, maybe it is aliens from outer space. Why exclude that possibility? Maybe. Well, those who are going to live through it will know it. It's going to be pretty horrible. Um, and... But I, I don't think it's going to be localized uh, because the Quran seems to talk about it like it is some event that's going to consume all of humanity. Um, maybe it is viruses that are going to decimate Allah Alam. Okay.
then Surat al-Anbiya, it is as if Surat al-Anbiya is saying, after all of this, remember that there is no escape from the inevitable in this remarkably beautiful expression. يَوْمَ نَطْوُ السَّمَاءَ كَطَيِّ السِّجِلِّ لِلْكُتُبِ كَمَا بَدَأْنَا أَوَّلَ خَلْقٍ نُعِيدَهُ وَعْدًا عَلَيْنَا إِنَّا كُنَّا فَعَلِينَ This is 104. That the day we take entire creation and roll it up, just like rolling up a parchment, it is as if, okay, after all said and done, yajuj and majuj and whatnot, and now comes the time where everything is just simply closed up. This entire reality in which you've dwelt is time for, uh, what is that movie called? The uh, Matrix? Oh, yeah. It's time for the Matrix to be turned off and all of it to be rolled up now and closed up. And at that point, a different reality sets in, one that you're not familiar with and you have no frame of reference with, too. وَلَقَدْ كَتَبْنَا فِي الزَّبُورِ مِنْ بَعْدِ الذِّكْرِ أَنَّ الْأَرْضَ يَرْثُهَا عِبَادِ الصَّالِحُونَ إِنَّ فِي هَذَا لَبَلَاغًا لِقَوْمٍ عَابِدِينَ وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ So, let's see how they... This is 105. And we've written in the study Quran, it says we've written in the Psalms after the reminder. I don't think Zabur here means the Psalms. I think Zabur in here means any revealed book. It is like saying we've written in the revealed book or in all the revealed book every time that Allah has reminded you or every time that Allah has sent a reminder that it is the righteous that will inherit the earth. Now, this has caused or has raised enormous amounts or substantial amounts of theological debates about how could it be that the righteous will inherit the earth. Is it saying that eventually at the end of times comes there will be a messiah and it is the righteous that will inherit the earth after a messiah. But if you don't believe in the messiah, that there will be a coming messiah. Does it mean that here, al-ard, doesn't mean earth as we know it, but al-ard means earth in the hereafter. So that, as some have believed, that heaven and hell will in fact be on earth, but with an altered reality. 
and that when it says it will be inherited by the righteous, that it's talking about the hereafter. I think both are unlikely, to be honest with you. And I think the meaning is precisely like the meaning that we vanquish falsehood or it bolsters and adds to or it supports the meaning we vanquish falsehood with truth. That yes, yes, the righteous might be persecuted, might be in fact killed, might be destroyed, but ultimately they inherit the earth morally in the same that the memory of the Prophet والسلام, you know with all those who maligned the Prophet and all those who attacked the Prophet and all those who slandered the Prophet the, the memory of the Prophet will remain a symbol for righteousness like Moses is a symbol for righteous, like Isa is a symbol for righteousness, like Ibrahim is a symbol for righteousness. The Hitlers of the world will always be the Hitlers of the world. With enough passage of time, what is moral and what is right is what survives. That is the Sunnah of Allah in existence. All those who thought vanity will live a vain, a vain existence and disappear with their vanities. But all those who live in virtue, they will ultimately inherit what is worth inheriting. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ And we've only sent you as a mercy to humankind. Now this is underscored that all prophets are sent to remind us of a core moral virtue that we need so that we don't languish in the despair of darkness. It is the greatest offense to turn the message of any prophets, any prophet, leave alone the Prophet Muhammad into an instrumentality of darkness and injustice. Look at the example of Dawood and Sulaiman. If Allah wants to alert us to the legacy of the prophets and the legacy of the prophets that are not associated with Anjayna or Stajabna and Allah underscores what it is their coherence with nature their equanimity with nature with existence not just nature and their justice Rahmah lil'alameen becomes obvious. Moral virtue means justice. Mawazin al-qust, the balance, the scales of justice. If moral virtue 
doesn't generate the scales of justice, then it is not moral virtue. Regardless of how much you try to convince yourself, it is exceptionalized morality. No morality leads to an injustice. فَإِن تَوَلُّوا قُلْ إِنَّمَا يُوحَى إِلَيَّ إِنَّمَا إِلَهُكُمْ إِلَهٌ وَاحِدٌ فَهَلْ أَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ Will you all come together under one Lord? This is 108. فَإِن تَوَلُّوا فَقُلْ أَذَنْتُكُمْ عَلَى سَوَاءٍ وَإِنْ أَدْرِي أَقَرِيبٌ أَمْ بَعِيدٌ مَا تُوعَدُونَ and if they turn away, then say, I've extended all means of vindicating my obligation towards you. But it's also as Antukum Alasawa also means I bear no vindictiveness or grudge against you. And I don't know whether what you are promised is close or far. I am but a human being. God knows what you conceal and what you hide. وَإِنْ أَدْرِي فِتْنَةٌ لَكُمْ وَمَتَاعٌ إِلَى حِينٌ قَالَ رَبِّي أُحْكُمْ بِالْحَقِّ وَرَبُّنَا الرَّحْمَنُ الْمُسْتَعَانُ عَلَى مَا تَصِفُونَ So, and, let's see, 111. So, and I don't know, ultimately, when you say وَإِنْ أَدْرِي لَعَلَّهُ فِتْنَةٌ لَكُمْ وَمَتَاعٌ إِلَى حِينٌ I don't know if ultimately Allah will the path that Allah has for you is like the path of those who طَالَ عَلَيْهُمُ الْأَمَدْ those who enjoyed their luxuries for so long they took it for granted and ultimately they were they were destroyed either through natural means or through invasion or otherwise i don't know or ultimately whether god has something else in store for you a, a remarkable statement when allah tells the prophet to speak to them that Allah tells the Prophet to underscore that he doesn't know what the future will bring. When Allah speaks to the Prophet, Allah underscores through various hints and implications that in fact their society is vanquished and he will prevail. That topic deserves a whole study in itself because it is remarkable 
that that these voices in the Quran where Allah even when Allah tells the Prophet something about the future Allah underscores with the Prophet that his sole option is never to, to claim that divine knowledge even when Allah tells them even when Allah gives them that knowledge Ultimately, here in some, in a different narratives, it's qila rabbi instead of qala rabbi. Qala, it would be, as say, he said. Who's that, who does the he refer, refer to? Uh, not qila, sorry, qul. In in other narrations, it should be Qul Rabbi, say, um, Lord, ultimately, if it, the, the he, well, anyway, I, I don't want to get into the, the subtleties of, but the position that you have as parting words is to say may the truth prevail and with all the suffering and all the persecution I turn my affairs to Allah I turn my affairs to Allah as to, 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 to all what you've done towards me. Surah Al-Anbiya, if we would summarize it, or at least the, the core things in it, because it's a very layered surah as that the battle between that first creation is purposeful because your God is purposeful and there is a moral, virtuous life that in sharp contrast with the life of pure materialism and consumerism. A life in which there is no absolute Lord and definer of right from wrong. After establishing that you ultimately your struggle is about establishing these moral virtues, it takes you to the prophets. And it gives you several lessons. First, 
do not rely on miraculous interventions from Allah. They're not an entitlement. Understand fully that people resist the truth because they have all types of vested reasons to resist truth. But if you shock people by destroying their system of belief, they're going to react violently. You better be prepared for that and consider it very carefully. The act of destruction itself by challenging people's systems of belief is not the point. Is not the point. The point is to replace what is wrong with what is good. The point is that the bottle has to be replaced with a haq. So, the point, in a word, is not to destroy the idols, just to destroy the idols. But the point ultimately is to establish the scales of justice. In my view, if you don't know, if it's not clear in your mind how you are going to go about establishing the scales of justice or taking concrete steps towards establishing the scales of justice, then destruction is never a cause in its own, in its, in and of its very self. It is, it is easy to destroy. It's much harder to build something. Any idiot can point out to illogical inconsistencies, to develop a critique. Any idiot can tear down things. It's much harder to actually offer something instead. But even the end of the age of miracles, at the scale that we know, the miraculous intervention of the divine in the life of individuals will never end. And the core of morality and virtue is one, as, as your God is one. And an ummah united in morality and virtue is one. But ultimately understand that if they turn away, they turn away. And that's Surah Al-Awliya. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. All right. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. So now Sheikh is just saying offline that he 
wants to isolate so he can read his book and he's going to be reading his book so hopefully we can get distract him to do the Q&A with us for just a little bit and then you can go back to reading so <laughs> um, I was also going to give a shout out to I know we left uh, some of the people thank you for staying with us this has been an incredible incredible halakha I mean already we're at 1042 so it's pretty late um, and thank you for, well, Joe's the last UK holdouts, five hours ahead, so may Allah bless you, and, and for everyone, even, I know there are several people in the UK that left, and um, so may God bless all of you, everywhere, wherever you are. Um, so anyway, this, um, there's so much to cover, alhamdulillah, that you were able to finish it in one session, but I know that we have a lot of people with questions, and um, I don't know if we should just kind of like, stick to our 45-minute rule question uh, and answer. But let me start by asking you, um, what was the vicar for the chapter? That book, not that one. Oh. <laughs> Here, let's just set that aside for a second. Okay. You can have it back after. <laughs> the vicar for... Well, I, you know, I just wanted to make a, a comment that um, it struck me, I mean, there's so many different things that, uh, you know, I would love to have, be able to have us spend time on, but the thing that really struck me is, um, you know, I'm like reading some of your other, like, stuff right now, and there was a period where you really focused on the idea of love, and it struck me in these stories, in this, in this surah, that so much of what we're learning about, you know, about God, um, it is, it's really an expression of love. I and mean, we talk about mercy, we talk about compassion, all these sorts of things. But if you think about like how so many Muslims in our modern time think of God in terms of fear, right? And um, when you hear these stories about how these prophets turned to God in, in utter despair or, you know, depression and happiness, and God relieved that, relieved them out of out of love, and and everything that is, you know, um, you know, the act of creation, and even like calling on us to be mindful of the environment. It's really telling us, you know, how to develop in love and love God's creation, and you know, build on that love. And so, it just it's so um, the the thing that I came across that you wrote earlier was just about how love has not like christianity sort of took the idea of love as like christianity is the religion of love but you know for so long islam was about the religion of love and that everything that emerged was from god's love and so i felt like this surah really underscored that so much as well um and actually if you're still, are you still looking or no, no, and, and then just one other one question, which actually someone else raised as well, is it's interesting when we go through all of the prophets, um, we didn't talk about Jesus and Mary, and what that role was in, you know, in all of that. I don't know if that was intentional or. If we well, and the 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 Surat al-Abiyah itself doesn't um, uh, doesn't say much about Jesus and Mary other than and I think the reason that they're mentioned in Surah Al-Anbiya because it's not the none of the miracles are emphasized and except mm -hmm. the miraculous conception itself but that's not that's it's not a the, 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 the title it's not a uh, it's not of the same nature um, 
But nothing about the, the crucifixion, nothing about uh, any of the uh, other miracles. But J Jesus um, is a really interesting example because um, he is sent to the Israelites. And he is sent to the Israelites as a reformer in, in the sense that to challenge a lot of the inequities and a lot of the injustices and the whole, all the parables of Jesus, um, that's precisely what they focus on, is the, the corruption that has set in with the religious elite and the, the, the servers of the temple. And, um, and, and challenging a lot of the injustices that, um, that have crept into the practices of Jews at the time. But here's the, the, the really interesting question. Is, is Jesus ultimately successful or unsuccessful? And I think that Surah Al-Anbiya intentionally leaves it hanging. Because on the one hand, he is, I mean, Jesus became more famous than any other prophet. Um, and he, um, you know, Christians who are supposedly the followers of Jesus uh, are the biggest religious group on the face of this earth. But it's not the original message of Jesus. It's a corrupted message. Um, and so he's, a, he's, it, it I, and I think that's why it's intentionally just Jesus is mentioned without elaboration because it raises some very interesting questions. Um, he, what, there are a set of events after Jesus where many of the inequities that were committed by the rabbinic class in Jewish society and which resulted in a whole series of reformers, not just the John the Baptist and Jesus, but there were a number of reformers, many of them far less famous, and all of them are executed. All of them are dealt with violently. Um, now, on the other one hand, the, the rabbinic class pays a very, very heavy price for that because their inequity, inequities ultimately lead their, their corrupt marriage with the power of Rome um, ultimately leads to the destruction of the Second Temple and 
do um, a, a a horrible persecution. So the the, the rabbinic class loses many of it, of their privileges. Um, but on the other hand, um, the it, it's not the type of reform Jesus wanted. Um, so it, it is, yeah, that's, you know, um, now there is an ethical core that is ultimately the legacy of the, the entire package of Mary and Jesus that that um, has an, an ethical core that persisted and uh, but on the, but at the same time um, it is the in in my view the whole the whole co-optation by Rome of the Christian message uh, has led to horrible results in racism and eventually centuries later in colonialism. Um, now th this this is picked up in another surah. So it, it is this is picked up as we'll see later on. But in Surat Al-Anbiya, I think it's quite intentional that it's left, like just raised, um, you know, as if, to, as if saying to be followed. And it is followed uh, later on in Ali Omran and others. Well, let me share this comment because it was actually related to what you're saying. Um, from Elaine. So many blessings to you, Ustad, for sharing with us the beauty of the Quran that you hold. I am grateful to you and to Allah for the experience of having a glimpse into the lives of those around the Prophet, hearing these surahs being revealed over the course of the revelation. Each tafsir provides a layer of understanding that over time is woven into this fabric that just keeps evolving and expanding my perceptions of what I thought I knew and what I am hopeful that I am learning. My question is more of an observation. I noticed with the addition of Mary being mentioned in this list that it seems to be a strong argument that she was a prophet. I'm also curious as to why she is not named like all the others. What is the significance that she is being called on by her moral virtue and not her name? And correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, I'm looking primarily at the English translation. So no, she's, she's not named here. And, you know, of course, and, um, 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 the, but the the I I think we the I've talked about this uh, um, before. I think it was in Surah Maryam that there is a, a a debate in the Islamic tradition as to whether Mary was a prophet, and um, the majority said she's not, but a minority view is that she is. And I think she most, in my opinion, she would most certainly was because, um, for for many different reasons, and and I don't believe she was the only prophet, female prophet in Islam either. Um, but she's the most 
prominent female prophet. Because the, the majority view doesn't seem to rest on anything um, other than just simply saying that well, the, the, the uh, prophecy requires physical rigor. And it's a type of physical rigor that is uh, not appropriate for women or that, you know, women can't perform and, uh, and that prophecy means confronting men and then persecute, you know, handling persecution and insults and beatings and things like that and that's not fitting for women and and but that's I mean that that that's not proof that that's sort of a, a effectively some type of argument based on uh, habit and custom and patriarchy women go through that yeah. every day to this very day yeah <laughs> so um, anyway Sorry, uh, dhikr. <laughs> Did you, can you tell us what the dhikr is for the surah? Yeah, it's the, the, what, what surah, what, what number is it? Um, it's 18, okay. which is the, the core, the core, in my view, the, the core ayah of the entire surah. Thank you. Sharif, did you want to get us started? That's 18, right? But not the Hubble Hakka Yeah, that is. It is? Right. Huh? It's not 18? It is 18. Um, do you think that the ideal that is spelled out in the surah that's achieved from the time of Musa to Dawood and Suleiman, two-part question, do you think that the Islamic, excuse me, the Islamic civilization achieved that ideal? in their time and also do you think i mean prophets and in, in a way are kind of a divine intervention in and of them, themselves which after prophet muhammad we haven't had that sort of divine intervention it almost seems like it's kind of like okay this is now the final test are you able to do this so how much of them being able to achieve that was because of prophets continually being sent from the time of Musa to the time of Suleiman. Can you paraphrase that? Um, well, I mean, the, the question really is to, to what extent is the justice that we see with the Prophets Dawood and Suleiman is itself a result of divine intervention, um, and whether the Islamic civilization achieved that type of justice. Um, first, we are presented with a 
a snapshot of the justice that uh, Dawood and Suleiman are achieving, but it doesn't mean that they achieved a just society. So we are presented with an ideal, but we shouldn't jump from that saying that there was a just society. Um, because we know, for instance, that uh, Dawood, when presented, was a different case. The, the case of the two litigants, uh, where one had 99 sheep and one had one sheep, or, or um, that here we're actually presented with an example of an error in justice. And and it's a procedural error, but it's an important error. So when when the, the Quran is giving us examples, it's giving us an ex example as an invitation to reflection, not necessarily as a, as a, a, an invitation to to make, to. It, the Quran is not is not like the Bible. It's not. It doesn't attempt to tell history. It, Every telling of history has a moral point. Um, so, to Dawood and Suleiman, obviously, the, there were a considerable amount of divine intervention, but the but that doesn't prevent us from understanding certain the, the 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 moral takeaway is for instance that the fact that Suleiman when he offered uh, invited the queen of sheba or Balqis uh, to uh, the faith she responded because of both the technological advancement that he achieved when he wowed her with the uh, the 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 um, uh, floor that looked as if it was water, um, and because of his military might, his power, uh, that truth needs to be supported with might. The fact is that human beings will often not give truth a chance unless they can respect it. And that's part of the realism of Islam is that it, it, and it is incumbent upon Muslims to, to learn from that, that in order to be able to serve Islam, in order to give Islam a fair shot, in order not to become victims of Islamophobia and it, where you are invented and reinvented and reinvented and reinvented by your foes and constantly portrayed and, and, and distorted and portrayed and distorted and portrayed and distorted, you need to be strong. You need to be powerful. Um, and that is very much a part of your mission to say, oh, you know, and 
And if you try, now, no one, by the way, achieves advancement or any level of justice without divine intervention. I mean, not that I'm saying that it is, but look at the American history. I mean, what can you imagine if America was, if God would have willed and America was had a Saddam Hussein instead of a, a, a George Washington? It would have completely gone off the rails. Was it coincidence that they have the had the set of presidents that they had? I mean, it took America a very long time before they eventually got a Trump. A Trump at a critical point in American history, the first hundred years, would have destroyed the U.S. forever. We have been history. We have gone. Um, the hand of God is with those who try. And those who aspire for an ideal. Uh, it doesn't mean that the hand of God is with America forever, because America has committed a lot of injustices. Um, but everything it is who is the most just among you who is the most ethical among you um and it is it is not it's not you know an all or nothing the the fact of the matter is that native american culture that was destroyed by white colonialism was replete with injustices and replete with the type of irrational mythology and caste systems and cruelty and and which is a, which did it in which ultimately uh destroyed it um in in the civilizational confrontation the same thing with the aztecs and incas and, you know um as barbaric as the spaniards were but they were relatively more moral than a lot of the the Aztec culture which relied on human sacrifices and so on. So now was the Islamic civilization achieved in comparison to the scales of justice that existed in the world at the time there is no question that the Islamic civilization's advancements in the institutions of justice were advancements. The, the fact that the Muslim judiciary had basic concepts like no ex post facto law, there was a presumption of innocence, that you couldn't convict someone without a process and procedure and, and notice and opportunity, that you couldn't convict someone without evidence that there had to be records of evidence, that the judiciary was thought to be, or there was an, a, a realization the judiciary had to be independent, and that it is not right to convict people according to uh, uh, the political will or in exceptional courts, or uh, in other words, in comparison to what existed in the world, it was clear advancement, no doubt. And it is only the institutions of Orientalism that attempt to deny that because we're a colonized people. Any fair student of law 
of comparative law, sees it very clearly. The advancements were marked and distinctive and all over the place. And when Muslims were no longer offered the best version and justice, the divine intervention was withdrawn and they were allowed to crumble. That's Allah's sunnah in, in, in the cone. Allah will help those who help themselves. You know, every how many technological advancements in the West were due to coincidence? The, the thing about the history of science is how much it's replete with coincidence. What they coincident, call coincidence, I call divine intervention. And because they merited it, Allah knew that when Allah helps them in this way, they're not going to waste the divine intervention, unlike in our societies where, you know, people would discover things and corruption destroyed everything, which continues to be the, the, the age. I mean, I'm sure that Iran is full of a, a gazillion geniuses that are, could invent things left and right, but corruption sucks the life out of everything. Why would Allah help the people like that? Why? It's not just if Allah did. Thank you so much, Sheikh. This presentation was really awesome and super exciting. Um, I had asked you previously about whether you thought that the mizan or the balance, the scale that Allah talks about perhaps in the afterlife is Him having to balance the attributes of Him taking account of people's actions and of the value of His mercy in regards to the, you know, balancing His mercy with accountability. Mm -hmm. um, to then establish that would be the end result of justice. Um, do you think that this surah perhaps nods to that in a way? Um, in verse 47, the very famous mustard seed kind of thing um, seems to suggest that, it, you know, it says essentially so that no soul would be wronged in the accounting process. Um, and then when you when you mentioned the story of Dawood and Sulaiman, there was a superior judgment. Right. And the superior judgment being that there was a merciful approach mm. to establish an equitable justice mm. rather than the accountable, yeah, yeah, yeah. heavy side of Dawood, who he seemed, that seemed to be in previous surah when he quickly made the snap judgment of 99 versus 1. It's clear right. you should be accountable. There's an imbalance. Right. He teamed tends to be more on the accountability side. Yeah, it's strict justice. Right. Yeah. And Suleiman in his practice seems to not hold any, you know, no stone unturned. Even mm -hmm. when it comes to the ant, he doesn't trample the ant. He says, well, let's do the yeah, merciful thing right, yeah. first. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether that is a nod there. Um, and then secondarily, last night you mentioned that there is a link between Safat mm. and... Um, this surah, and I wondered when you mentioned um, the success of Dawood and Sulaiman, 
you mentioned power. And um, it seems like the overall motif of the surah is preparing Muslims for any outcome. You may win, you may lose. You may mm -hmm. win in an earthly way and have a great time, or you may lose in an earthly way and be accounted for it in the hereafter. Um, but when it comes to if you win in an earthly way and you indeed gain the power, I wondered if the link was back to Safat in the third third verse of Safat in which it talks about the dhikr and the dhikr essentially being an equitable mm -hmm. um, performance of the divine will because it's very easy for us to start a project and get lost in, in the success of the project without remembering that there's no shortcuts we have to make sure that we're doing the more the fiqh sulaiman in mm -hmm. essence right so I was wondering whether is that the link that you had in mind or mm. what is the link that you had in mind? The, the, the first about the, the nature of sort of strict justice was mercy. That's, a, that's an excellent point. It, it, I mean, and I'm happy you brought it up because it is precisely the, the superior justice is the ability to achieve um, equity, as you achieve formal justice, um, and um, and we we know that humans has struggled with this um, so much so that in the common law system there there were courts of law and then courts of equity because human beings set rules and once the rules are set. Uh, judges tend to, or judiciary, the mechanisms of the judiciary, tends to enforce the rules regardless uh, of whether the outcome makes make rational sense or not. Um, interestingly, in the Islamic legacy, Muslim courts never separated courts of justice from courts of equity. Uh, and it was expected that the judiciary was supposed to achieve both. Um, in the later, in the in the dark ages of Islamic law, meaning as the age of colonialism, uh, Islamic courts became increasingly absorbed by red tape and for and formalism, uh, formalism and thinking, formalism and, and so many. But the that's an, a really good point because uh, it, it is precisely it's as if the challenge is not just to think of formal justice but ultimately justice must resonate at a social level um, all justice has has to become social justice and that's a huge challenge. And, you know, without training in formal justice, social justice is not possible. But it's very dangerous to train in formal justice and stop there and not go beyond it. And, and we all know that, that there is, subhanAllah, I mean, 
on the one uh, on the one hand there is the strict justice that no sin is going to or no good deed will go unaccounted for no sin will go unaccounted for but all of us as the prophet said no one will be saved by their deeds by, by Allah's mercy so all of us are counting on Allah's mercy not the strictness of justice to save us at the end um, Um, the the relation between Safat and Surah Al-Anbiya uh, one uh, is what you've noted and I'm happy you brought this up um, the other is Can you just paraphrase um, yeah um Essentially, the question is power, and the third verse of Safat with with regard to dhikr, and if you gain power, are you able to wield it in a way that is equitable in a divine yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does that clear? Or shall I? Do you hear it? Oh, I heard it. I just mm -hmm. thought, yeah, if you could, okay. if you paraphrased it, but that's okay. Okay. So, and that's. That, um, but the so yeah the the this whole uh, um, the 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 centrality of um, it's, it's like saying it's not just about power 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 can aid the but power without dhikr is a disaster uh but then the other uh, relation or the other co connection between uh, safat and anbiya is that safat like surah anbiya presented us with a um a telling of narratives of the prophets and and, and a and in 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 incrementally you come to realize that it is as if Allah it, it, Allah is saying that uh, don't rely on miracles and don't expect miracles while miracles was were a in a, a, a stark way of supporting earlier prophets, this is not going to be with the Prophet Muhammad And but Surah Al Anbiya takes the same narratives of the prophets that we encountered in the Safat and takes us to a, 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 a further understanding of the role, a further understanding of when Allah speaks about the destruction of a people. In Surah Al-Safat, we are presented with Yunus, who is perhaps the only successful model 
in terms of changing his people. Um, uh, and the other prophets, the, 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 their people are destroyed, and that's where the, the story leaves off. In Surah Al-Anbiya, the picture gets a bit more complicated because you have Yunus, again, who we know, but Yunus is presented in Surah Al-Anbiya not as a person who changes people, but as a person who is sitting in the darkness supplicating to God. And those who are successful are Dawood and Sulaiman and and we we sort of get, we, we see their success in a more idealized form. We're not very told very much about their people at all. And then Ibrahim, who changes a people, but it is not the original people. That and we are brought to an element of his success that has to do with. The, his progeny, Ishaq, Ismail, and his grandson. Um, so it brings us back to this whole issue of what success means in the life of a message. But we reflect upon it in a more sophisticated and layered and nuanced way than in a Safat. With Safat is destruction, 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 and the news. Um, which is, is remarkable. And you find, I mean, although none of the commentators on the Quran noted that, but um, um, in, in books, not books of tafsir, but books of theology, people who've noticed that there has to, that the, the, that the Quran tells us the story of the prophets from different angles. And although it was never developed, but at least they, they noted that we ought to focus not on the story, not to interject in the story about the, the prophets, whatever the, the, the surah does not tell. So in other words, not to fill in the blanks, but we take the narrative of the surah about the prophet as it is and understand what the point of saying the story in this way is. Alhamdulillah, that's exactly what you're doing. So it's like you're taking it further, Alhamdulillah. Mm -hmm. So we are out of time. It's really late. We need to stop. You haven't had dinner, but this has been an incredible session. And alhamdulillah, um, thank you so much. I'm sure that, you know, inshallah, maybe we'll have another opportunity to-, to Give me back my book. <laughs> she took away my book. Okay, alhamdulillah. Uh. <laughs> thank you for being with us. And inshallah, um, have a wonderful rest of the weekend. And we will look forward to seeing you this coming Tuesday. Inshallah, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.